0: Welcome to Wendell's
1: World in Sports. Let's be great. Let's be great. An entertaining and provocative look into the world of sports and beyond. Play our game. All right?
0: Play hard, but stay poised. Please feel free to go over to Apple iTunes and rate and review. Your feedback is welcome. Go
1: rock this thing, huh? Love you, man. Go get it.
0: And now, the host of the program, from the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, Wendell Wallace! And welcome to Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us, a lot of things to discuss today in the world of sports. Before I begin, first I want to apologize for taking so long to put down another podcast, I've been doing a lot of work outside of my home, my home domain, which didn't allow me to put in the work and the time and the effort to put together the best podcast that I could, but now, since those days are over, and I can see clearly now that the rain is gone, I'm going to be able to give you a more consistent showing of podcasts. So I want to apologize and thank you very much for picking back up and listening to what I have to say pertaining to the world of sports. So today, you know, we're going to talk about Super Bowl 54. It is now set. We've got the Kansas City Chiefs versus the San Francisco 49ers. The two best teams in the league are going to be playing for the Super Bowl. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I know. I know. I Yes. Yes. Yes, I watched the AFC and NFC Championship games. Yes, I understand that you're going to be screaming and hollering about the Baltimore Ravens. I get it. I get it. They finished the season 14-2 and two after winning 12 straight games. I, I know. I got it. Yeah, they've got the MVP of the league in Lamar Jackson, an emerging superstar, franchise, multiple winning Super Bowl quarterback potentially, and Lamar Jackson. I get it. I understand all those things. I, yes, I understand that Jackson is twenty five as a starting, starting quarterback in the league, even counting The playoffs. I know all that. I know that Baltimore led the league in rushing with third and total offense. I know all of those things. But here's why I say once again despite all of those accolades, despite all of those achievements that the Ravens uh, achieved this season, I think that the best team, especially now in playoff time, are is the Kansas City Chiefs. And the reason why I say that is because, number one, they have the best quarterback in football. I'll get back to that a little bit later in Patrick Mahomes. But I also think it's just a matter of, you know what, what Kansas City went through in the playoffs last season, losing to the New England Patriots like they did, missing out on an opportunity to go to the Super Bowl, it was right there in their grasp to get that AFC championship and then move on to the Super Bowl. But mental mistakes and other things contributed to, New England coming back and upsetting the Chiefs for them, the Patriots, not Kansas City, to go to the Super Bowl. I think that experience really propelled Kansas City in this playoff for them to say, you know what, when we get that opportunity, we are not going to let it slip away again. And I think Baltimore, with with the crew that they have, Lamar Jackson, that quarterback, and all these other parts moving around for Baltimore, they haven't reached that they haven't reached that type of disappointment yet. I mean, I hate to say it, but in the learning process, I think this is only a good thing when you're speaking about Baltimore losing to the Tennessee Titans. I think this is a good thing in the next five or six years down the road for the Baltimore Ravens, and in particular, Lamar Jackson. I think that if to be a Super Bowl champion, to be a great champion, that you have to go through something like this. Now, you could say, well, Joe Montana didn't have to do something like that. Tom Brady didn't have to go through something like that. Yes, rarely on the occasion those things happen, but... Just like in basketball, where you're talking about teams needing to go through the fire, go through the disappointment, go through the heartache, it hardens them, it matures them, it teaches them, it drives them, it motivates them. I think that's the same thing what happened with the Kansas City Chiefs when they lost the AFC Championship game last season. I think those guys, especially Patrick Mahomes, learned that, you know what, I could throw for 85,000 yards and I can pass for 15,000 touchdowns and I can be in All-State commercials with my man, Aaron Rodgers, I can do all of those things. But you know what? It doesn't mean jack shit if I can't get to the Super Bowl and win the Super Bowl. So I think going into this season, since Kansas City, they had a great season last uh, year. Patrick Mahomes had a marvelous season last year to statistically winning the MVP, the accolades, the awards. Great. We've got all that stuff. All that stuff is now past tense. Now it's what have you done for me lately? Don't talk about, well, I can win an MVP. Don't talk about, I can get the the team can get the number 1 seed in the playoffs. Big deal, been there, done that. Now the only thing left for Kansas City to do is to go ahead and win the AFC championship and then go on and play in the Super Bowl. Those were the goals. Those were the expectations. It wasn't about winning the division, it wasn't about it wasn't about getting the number 1 seed in the playoffs it wasn't about all those things it wasn't about Patrick Mahomes proving that he can be an elite quarterback it wasn't about any of those things if for this season the Kansas City Chiefs their objective was to get to the playoffs beat the New England Patriots and then go on to the Super Bowl something they feel they feel in their hearts they should have been able to do last season because of that Regular season, Schmegler season, doesn't mean jack shit. They get to the playoffs, they fall behind to Houston, 24-0. They came back, blew them out the water. Then they were down 17-7 to the Tennessee Titans in the AFC Championships, who gives a flip, comes back, and wins that game pretty handily, 35-24. Now it's on to the Super Bowl. Now the objective for the Kansas City Chiefs in terms of revenging the disappointment that they had at the end of the season in terms of losing, coming up short, in the championship game, now that has been a race. So I think that journey that the Kansas City Chiefs took, those objectives that the Kansas City Chiefs took, those aspirations and expectations that the Kansas City Chiefs had for the 2019 season made them a more hardened and made them a better playoff team through experience than, say, the Baltimore Ravens. So that's why I say despite all of the great things that happened in the regular season, yes, the Ravens were the best team in the regular season, but as you know, the regular season and the playoffs are completely different. So Kansas City moving on to the Super Bowl. And when I think about this, when I think about the Kansas City Chiefs, first time in 50 years, man, they're going to the Super Bowl. I I think franchises like the New York Jets and the Detroit Lions, Minnesota Vikings, Cleveland Browns, I think they're all comparable until... The Chiefs really drafted Mahomes until the Chiefs had this ongoing two-year run where they had the best record last season. They made it to the AFC Championship, and then this season they were favorites to be one of the elite teams that could win the Super Bowl. They went ahead and made the Super Bowl, the AFC Championship game, blah, blah, blah. All these accomplishments that they had, before all of those things happened, I always lumped the Chiefs, their organization, especially over the last 30, 40 years, with those teams, like I mentioned before, like the Lions and the Vikings and the Jets and the Browns and so on. Because to me, they're comparable in the fact that, you know, these are really proud franchises. I know that you can take a look at the Detroit Lions and say, proud franchise, the Lions, Detroit, really? I know that you can maybe take a look at the Cleveland Browns and say, the Cleveland Browns, really? Are you serious? The Browns? Why I made that distinction, why I made that comparison is because you have to remember, the New York Jets, hey, we're talking about... An original AFL team started off as the New York Titans. They went ahead and won Super Bowl three. Joe Namath, the Detroit Lions, one of the foundations of the NFL as far as its history is concerned. Bobby Lane leading that dynasty, the mini-dynasty that the Lions had back in the 50s. Dick Knight, Train Lane, and such. The Minnesota Vikings, another team. That I compare to the Kansas City Chiefs in terms of a proud franchise, a team that dominated the NFC in the 1970s, a team that has had a rich historical tradition uh, with the uh, NFL. The fact that they haven't won the Super Bowl yet, I compare the Kansas City Chiefs to the Cleveland Browns, a team that was one of the most dominant sports franchises through the first, what, 20, 30, 40, 50 years of the NFL, when you're speaking about Paul Brown and what he did in the, in the AFL and integrating with Marion Motley and the quarterback, Otto Graham, winning 10 championships or going to the NFL championship game uh, 10 times, 10 consecutive times, and, of course, the greatest running back of all time and one of the greatest football players of all time, Jim Brown, and all of Leroy Kelly and all of these all of these historical great things, Uh, Sam Martigliano and Brian Sipe and Ozzie Newsome. I mean, I know for the last decade plus or so that the Cleveland Browns have been an absolute joke. And yes, we can talk about Cleveland Browns before and Cleveland Browns after or Cleveland Browns before Art Modell, Cleveland Browns after Art Modell. We can talk about all those things, but I'm just talking about that name, Cleveland Browns, just along with that name. Minnesota Vikings, Detroit Lions, New York Jets. For me... The Kansas City Chiefs always floated down and was always sitting side by side with franchises like that until, as I mentioned again, for the first time in 50 years, the Chiefs with the great, great Joe Delaney looking down and, of course, Christian McCoy and Marty Schottenheimer. They're the gleam, men. They're the gleam. Get the gleam. Oh, that's right. That was when he was close to Cleveland where he made that stupid-ass comment. But, uh, you know, the, the Kansas City Chiefs, again, a very strong NFL city. Now finally getting the opportunity to go to the NFL championship, to go to the Super Bowl and play. So when I talk about the Jets and the Lions and the Vikings and the Browns, that's what I'm talking about in terms of lumping them all together with the Kansas City Chiefs. Again, before the Chiefs made it to the Super Bowl, and maybe the Chiefs doing what they did can give some type of onus of hope for those franchises that I just mentioned. Wendell's World in Sports, Wendell's. Wallace here, doing what I need to do. Andy Reid going back to the Super Bowl for the first time since the 2004 season. You know, that's the second longest gap in between going to the Super Bowl. Dick Vermeil when he went to the Super Bowl with the um, Eagles, where they lost to the Oakland Raiders 27 to 10, and then he came back and won a Super Bowl with the St. Louis Rams. So Andy Reid is going to go ahead and try to get that done. Andy Reid, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, Andy Reid has the resume has the longevity, has the wins, has the accomplishments to be a borderline Hall of Famer. Andy Reid gets this victory. Andy Reid wins this Super Bowl. Do you put him in the NFL Hall of Fame? Does is he become now, I know his chances of course improve, I understand that, but is it now one of those situations where, okay, he's got himself that Super Bowl because of everything else that he accomplished as a coach with the Philadelphia Eagles and with the Kansas City Chiefs? He went to the Super Bowl with the Philadelphia Eagles where they lost to the New England Patriots and then they takes another franchise to the Super Bowl. If he goes ahead and wins this, I would have to say you have to put Andy Reid in the Hall of Fame. There's really nothing left for him to do. As far as that accomplishment is concerned, Andy Reid's a damn good coach. Now, I know for a long time, especially in Philadelphia, and Andy Reid was always the coach who was always getting there but never got over the hump. And there were some teams that he had where many Philadelphians, and the NFL, people who knew the game, thought that he had the best team, at least in the NFC. That team with Donovan McNabb where they lost to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers or a couple of other teams that he had where they came up short in the NFC Championship game. And the question was always, Andy, when are you ever going to get over the hump? And I remember the situation where I think it was after they lost to the Tampa Bay Yuccaneers in the NFC Championship. I mean, there was a situation where there was strong sentiment that, you know what? I think Reed lost his best opportunity to go to the Super Bowl again. And again, he's been fighting an uphill battle, but he finally makes it to the Super Bowl. If he wins it, I don't think if he lo- if he loses Still borderline, still borderline, but if he wins it, I think he's then a slam dunk chance for him to uh, get into the Hall of Fame as a coach. Wendell, well, he's definitely not as a player. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, so doggone glad that you could be with us. The AFC Championship game, as I mentioned before, Kansas City over Tennessee, 35-24. You know, when I was watching these playoffs, and I was watching Patrick Mahomes do a thing against Tennessee, he was 23-35, of 35, 294 yards. Three TD passes, one rushing, a la Steve Young in that run that he had near the end of the first half. Kansas City went from being down 17-7 in the second quarter to leading 21-17 at halftime, then leading to 35-17 midway through the fourth quarter. Do you think the Kansas City Chiefs of last year would have had the poise, would have had the maturity, would have had the experience to rebound as quickly as they did, even when they fell behind 24-0? to the houston texans i didn't see any type of panic i didn't see any type of woe is me i didn't see any type of here we go again no one started bringing out oh you remember andy Reid here remember his playoff history not good not good i didn't hear any of that i didn't see any of that when they were doing the reporting from the field uh, the sideline reporters were talking about there was no panic there was no uh fear in their eyes they knew they were going to come back so I think, again, when we speak and when I go all the way back to the two best teams playing in the NFL uh, in the uh, Super Bowl, yes, Kansas City, not the Baltimore Ravens or anybody else the New England Patriots should be considered that, uh, should be considered a worthy foe. But getting back, man, to Patrick Mahomes, man, you know what it was? Because I was taking a look at this game and I was taking a look at this game against the Tennessee Titans and Kansas City scored in a variety of ways. They had five touchdowns in that AFC Championship game. They went nine plays on 86 yards, and the minute of 43 at the end of the first half. Mahomes had that 27-yard TD run to take the lead, 21-17. And then on their first scoring drive, when they fell behind, they went 10 plays on 74 yards, 5 6 There wasn't any bombs. There wasn't any sense of panic, as I mentioned before. And then, of course, with the dagger, they said, you know what, enough of this nonsense. Sammy Watkins, 60-yard TD pass to make it 35-17. Dagger, ball game, thanks for coming. Pick up your constellation prize on the way out, Tennessee Titans. So, Mahomes has been the best player in the playoffs without question, in my opinion. I mean, we're talking about playoff games against Houston and Tennessee, and it was almost like Mahomes was like, you know what, y'all? I got to remind you guys that I am the best quarterback. I know everyone's been gah and goo-gooing over Lamar Jackson, and everybody's talking about Tom Brady at 42 years old, what he's doing, and Drew Brees completing 75% of his passes in the regular season, and oh my goodness gracious, and as I mentioned before, channeling back to Lamar Jackson, he seemed to be the flavor of the month, and he's going to change the game, and this is unbelievable, and he's the MVP and everything. Patrick Mahomes was like, enough! Let me explain to you guys why I am the doggone best quarterback in the league. Remember when it was Russell Wilson, Lamar Jackson, and Deshaun Watson, the three top candidates? Probably midway through the NFL season, they were talking about the MVP. Remember all that nonsense? Well, against Houston, I swear, when Kansas City played Houston in the divisional round, it was almost like Mahomes was playing the role of the 1992 NBA Finals' Michael Jordan while Deshaun Watson was Portland's Clyde Drexler. You know what I mean? Remember in that game one where Jordan hit six threes in the first half and he went over to Magic, and kind of shrugged his shoulders like, eh, what do you want me to do? Well, I'm the man. Remember how focused, remember how angry almost Jordan was because they were talking about, hey, you know, Clyde Drexler's coming in with Portland. Uh, you know, who's really the best shooting guard in the league? I don't know. Clyde this, Clyde that. And, and Jordan was like, Man, let me tell y'all fools something. Let, 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 me, let, me, let, me, let me explain to you guys why I am the best in the game. Let me let me show you my greatness. Because all this nonsense you're talking about, Clyde Drexler. Well, first of all, y'all must have lost your motherfucking minds to be talking about Clyde Drexler being compared to me, being close to me, being even, even the same stratosphere as me. Let, let me. let me put an end to that. Clyde Drexler. It's the key to the Portland Trailblazers. And because of Clyde Drexler, arguably one of the best in the game, one of the best two guards, if not the best two guards in the game, he's going to be the reason why the Portland Trailblazers might pull off the upset against the defending champion Chicago Bulls. Michael Jordan was like, man, fuck that bullshit. Let me explain to you who I am, and let me explain to you what I'm all about. Let me explain to you why we are going to crush these boys like a bug. And that's exactly at least in games one that at least in game one that Michael Jordan did. It seemed that way for me that Patrick Mahomes, oh man, Deshaun Watson, Deshaun Watson had to play on the playoffs. Did you see that move that he had against the Buffalo Bills where he was gonna be sacked and he spun around and he made that incredible play in overtime and oh my goodness, Deshaun Watson this, Deshaun Watson that moving back to the regular season, Deshaun Watson, MVP candidate, this, that and the other. Patrick Mahomes was like shit. Let let, let me educate you boys. Let me again. Let me remind you boys who the best quarterback in the league is hell? Let me remind you boys who the best player in the NFL is it ain't Lamar It's Patrick Mahomes That's the feeling I got when he was playing against the Houston Texans and Deshaun Watson And you're talking about through through two playoff games Patrick is completing what 66% of his passes? 70 per- 70 passes that he's thrown, he's completing 66% of them, thrown for 615 yards, eight touchdowns, no interceptions, and in two games. Excuse me. Hello, who is the best player in the NFL? Hello, who's the best quarterback in the NFL? Okay, yeah, this season I didn't have statistically the great season that I had my first year starting, but that's okay. Let me tell you something, I might not have the numbers and the stats and everything like that, but I have the maturity, I have the understanding, I have the education, the knowledge of how to play the quarterback position a lot more. I have another season in Andy Reid and Eric Bieniemy's offense. I'm doing quite all right. And again, in the two playoff games, the divisional round against Houston and the AFC Championship game against Tennessee, yeah, he showed what Patrick Mahomes was all about. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, so doggone glad. To be with us. One thing that I liked about what I saw in this playoff run from the Chiefs, I saw a, a, a balance. Now, when we talk about balance, there's all different kinds of balances when we're talking about the offensive side from the football. And sometimes when we talk about balance, we mean 50 50. That is true, but sometimes, when, depending upon the quarterback, that's not true. When you have a talent like a Patrick Mahomes, just like when Don Shula had a talent like Dan Marino, or just like when you have Denver with John Elway, yeah, you want to be balanced, but you don't want to be too balanced. You still want to have those boys, you still want to have those guys slinging that football all over the place. Now, you don't want to become too pass-heavy, of course, but, you know, when you're talking about, hey, 60-40, 65-35, something like that, in terms of pass to run when you have a, Offensive weapon like Patrick Mahomes and you have offensive weapons like Tyreek Tyreek Hill and Kelsey and Sammy Watkins and those guys You don't want to become too dependent or you don't want to fall in love with trying to run the football you're not trying to be the San Francisco 49ers or you're not trying to be the Baltimore Ravens, but I tell you what in that offense Through two games when we're speaking about Kansas City Andy Reid who does enjoy passing the football around in the two games in the playoffs 48 Rushing carries, 230 yards and averaging 4.7 yards per carry through both of those games. Outstanding. That makes Patrick Mahomes even that much more potent. And the defense for Kansas City taking over, doing well. We don't want them to be the 1969 Kansas City Chiefs on defense. We don't want them to be the 1985 Chicago Bears. We don't want them to be the 2001 Baltimore Ravens, Ravens, Ravens or the Ravens. No, not the Baltimore Ravens. That's that's not that's not who we want them to be. We don't even want them to be the Legion of Boom for Seattle. But you know what? When you have an offense like they have, hey, man, you know what? Just be decent. And against, against Tennessee, they were above average. Derrick Henry came into the game averaging, well, they had 377 yards on 60 carries. I mean, that's about five, six yards a carry. Against Kansas City, 69 yards on 19 carries. That's getting it down. Gonna get done against Houston the Kansas City defense allowed only seven points in the second half I'll scored them 23 to 7 during the season or during that during that second half again, they don't have to be great again They don't have to be dominant. That's fine. That's okay. And the improvements on defense 2018 Defensively, they weren't ready to win a championship they finished thirty first uh, overall on defense, only ahead of Cincinnati. They gave up twenty six points per game, which was just, which was twenty fourth in the league last season. Last season, that defense for Kansas City gave up forty three points to the New England Patriots, thirty eight points against Seattle, fifty four points in that Monday Night Football game against the L A Rams, thirty seven points against Pittsburgh. They gave up. Speaking about the Kansas City Chiefs defense, they gave up twenty seven or more points. In half of their regular season games, that's not going to get it done in the playoffs. I don't give a damn how potent. I don't give a damn how incredible your defense is. That ain't going to get it done. So the consequences of that, they went ahead after the season was over. They fired the defensive coordinator Bob Sutton, reassigned and let go all of their other defensive assistant coaches. They let go of guys like eric berry They let go of justin houston they traded d ford alan bailey steve nelson all those guys see you later they hired steve spagnola as a new defensive coordinator they hired a new staff established a 4-3 base system of defense replacing the 3-4 this season much better they went ahead and got tyron matthew the honey badger this season look what the kansas city chiefs are doing now on defense 17th total passing excuse me 17th in total defense eighth in passing yardage Gave 27 or more points in just five games the most points. They gave they uh, gave up the season were 35 points against The Houston Texans. So boom, excuse me against the Tennessee Titans. So boom, there you go Now we have a defense in Kansas City doesn't have to be great not asking them to be great But they have a they have a defense balanced in with the potent offense that they have to where you know what? Don't worry about giving up 17, 24 points a game because we got an offense that can put up 31, 35, 42. Because of that, the Kansas City Chiefs are going to the Super Bowl. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So doggone glad to be with you. Man, how about this? In the NFC Championship game, the Kansas City, excuse me, the San, uh, San Francisco 49ers over the Green Bay Packers, 37-20, to 20, Raheem Mostert. Rushed for 220 yards and four touchdowns. He had TD runs of 9 and 18 yards in the second quarter. Had 160 yards rushing by halftime. Jimmy Garoppolo. How about that, huh? Well, he's not out there dating porn stars, lucky guy. He was out there 6 for 8 for 77 yards. The man went 24 minutes of game time. 24 minutes of game time between the 6th and 7th passes. Are you kidding me? So now San Francisco is the third team to make the Super Bowl a year after winning four or fewer games. Cincinnati did it in 1988. That was with Sam Weiss and Boomer Science. In. I think he was the MVP of that year. And the Los Angeles Rams, then St. Louis Rams, still the St. Louis Rams of 1999. Dick Vermeil really was on the hot seat. Dick Vermeil came into that season basically saying, look, if you don't do anything better than what you're doing the first couple of years, you're going to be gone. So Trent, Trent Green gets injured in a preseason game some guy named Curt Warner No, not Curt Warner who played college at Penn State and then went to the Seattle Seahawks where he was a really good running back Not that Curt Warner. Not not black Curt Warner white Curt Warner from Iowa came off and Led the team and the greatest show on turf and Isaac Bruce and Torrey Holt and Ricky Prol and all those guys so That's what the 49ers are trying to do. They're trying to become the second team to win uh, do I uh, win a Super Bowl after winning only four games or fewer the year before so hey man, you know what you know What they're also trying to do speaking about the San Francisco 49ers They're also trying to become the fifth team since 2000 To win a Super Bowl without a franchise quarterback if you really take a look at it I mean there's been five other teams that I mentioned before the Super Bowl thirty-five, Baltimore over New York. Trent Dilfer, Kerry Collins. Remember that one? Yeah, Kerry Collins, Trent Dilfer, Trent Dilfer not going to be, not going to be lumped in with some of the Hall of Fame quarterbacks that have won Super Bowls. Super Bowl thirty-seven, Tampa Bay over Oakland. Brad Johnson was the quarterback for Tampa. Beat Rich Gannon, who was the quarterback and the MVP that season for the Oakland Raiders. That was, that was Rich Callahan. That was who? Was that was Callahan. Bill Callahan. Uh, uh, he was the coach of the. Um, Raiders that season, and that was the year that John Gruden, first year taking Tony Dungy's players and winning a championship with that. So that was another season where it was kind of like, oh, okay, you don't need to have a franchise quarterback to win a Super Bowl. Then we moved 10 years from Super Bowl 37 to Super Bowl 47, where you had Baltimore over San Francisco. That was the Joe Flacco, Colin Kaepernick Bowl. And then Super Bowl 52, Philadelphia over New England. Of course, we all know about Nick Foles substituting for Carson Wentz coming in and winning the Super Bowl in a really entertaining game over New England and Tom Brady. So Garoppolo is trying to become, I guess what, maybe the first quarterback since Bob Greasy in the early 1970s with the Miami Dolphins that you know, with Larry Zonka and Jim Kick and Mercury Morris and those guys in the running game, I mean, despite the fact that Miami at that time still had Paul Warfield, who could stretch the defense and make great plays still in this Hall of Fame prime, really didn't concentrate on the pass, really rode the running game. That's the same thing that the San Francisco 49ers are going to be doing. And like I said before, if they do win this, it's going to be without a Hall of Fame quarterback, at least right now not a Hall of Fame quarterback in Jimmy Garoppolo. So the sixth There's been six different quarterbacks who's won the Super Bowl since the 2000 season. You're taking a look at someone like a Tom Brady who's won six. He's going to the Hall of Fame. Peyton Manning's has won two. He's in the Hall of Fame or should be going to the Hall of Fame. Eli Manning, who just retired, he won two of those Super Bowls. Is he a Hall of Famer? Yeah, let me put it this way. If Jim Plunkett is not in the Hall of Fame, Eli Manning should not be anywhere near the Hall of Fame. But Ben Roethlisberger won two Super Bowls. He's going to be going to the Hall of Fame, and the other quarterbacks who've won Super Bowls since the 2000 season, Tom Brady, Hall of Famer, Peyton Manning, Hall of Famer, Ben Roethlisberger, Hall of Famer, Drew Brees, who won a championship over Indianapolis, he's a Hall of Famer, Russell Wilson won a championship over Denver with Peyton Manning, he, if he continues what he's doing, he's going to be a Hall of Famer, and then of course Aaron Rodgers, their victory, Green Bay's victory over Pittsburgh, Aaron Rodgers along. I wonder when Aaron Rodgers goes to the Hall of Fame, is he going to take his State Farm agent with him? I mean, is that going to be some type of show when he goes up to, is the State Farm agent going to be the one that's going to introduce him? Because I know that he doesn't talk to his family. I know he's estranged from his family, and I don't know if he's going to have Danica do it. I don't know if he's still going to be with her by the time that uh, he retires and he waits five years for him to get into the Hall of Fame. So during that time, is he still going to still keep that same brother who's the uh, All-State agent? that's going to be coming up and introducing him or is even his agent the other guy his uh sports agent Mr. Mr uh, that the one funny guy the agent which one of those guys is going to introduce Aaron Rodgers into the Hall of Fame that'll be interesting to see but not nah, seriously but uh, so those are the quarterbacks who have won the Super Bowl since the 2000 season and it kind of it kind of relates the point or it kind of makes sense of the point when you're talking about Brady, Manning, Eli, excuse me, Brady, Peyton Manning, Ben Roethlisberger, Drew Brees, Russell Wilson, Aaron Rodgers. I mean, right there, we're talking about 6, 8, 10, 12, 13. We're talking about 13 championships that have been won by future Hall of Famers. So, yeah, again, Jimmy Garoppolo is going to be trying to do something that's rarely done. And I guess in a time like this where you have such great dynamic quarterbacks as a Patrick Mahomes and with a Deshaun Watson and such that, you know, it almost lends to hope because it's always been like, what's been the most important thing in terms of football, in terms of the NFL game? What is the most important thing? It's the quarterback, right? Everyone says that, you know what, if you don't have a quarterback, you need that franchise quarterback. If you don't have a quarterback, you can't win the NFL championship. Ultimately, it's going to have to come down to you having a franchise, unbelievable, top two, top three type quarterback, right? So we've seen teams just go bonkers. We've just seen teams move up and draft quarterbacks and do all these types of things and reach and stretch for quarterbacks who they believe that maybe they can turn into franchise quarterbacks. We've seen franchises franchises give stupid-ass money to uh, quarterbacks hoping that they'll be the one. We saw what happened with the Minnesota Vikings, them giving a boatload of money to Kirk Cousins. We saw the Arizona Cardinals eschew drafting Nick Bosa to go ahead and draft uh, Kyler Murray, we've seen examples before where the Buffalo Bills took a flyer on E.J. Manuel because he's the big, strong guy. They needed the quarterback. It's almost like if you need a quarterback, you can almost forgo selecting themselves a top safety or a top offensive lineman or a top linebacker because the notion or the theory is that you need to have yourself a quarterback to win yourself a Super Bowl championship. Well, if you're the San Francisco 49ers, you're looking at that theory and you're looking at the people who are throwing out those theories and you're saying, bullshit, I bet you we don't. We can win the Super Bowl with a strong running game. We can win a Super Bowl with a strong offensive line. We can win a Super Bowl with a dominating front four. We can do all of them things. We don't need to have an Aaron Rodgers in his prime. We don't need to have a Drew Brees or a Tom Brady from 2009 or a Peyton Manning from 2014 or a Ben Roethlisberger from 2011. We don't need that type of quarterback. We don't need Jimmy Garoppolo as of 2019 is not going into the Hall of Fame. We don't need him throwing the ball around 35, 40 times a game despite the rules that suggest that, that want you guys to throw the ball all over the field. We don't need that. So it'll be interesting. And there's also, because again, against Green Bay, 6 of 8, passing attempts, 77 yards. Against Minnesota, boy, he was slinging it all over the place for him. He threw the ball 19 whole times. woo So in two playoff games, Jimmy Garoppolo has, is 17 of 27 for 208 yards. Patrick Mahomes does that in a half after a team falls behind by at least two scores. Now, he's shown to be, speaking of Garoppolo, hey, look, he's shown to be a competent quarterback. Go back and check the tape against against the um, New Orleans Saints and see what he did against those guys. So he showed the ability to put a team on his shoulders, at least through one game, and get them to the promised land. That exciting 48-46 victory that San Francisco had against New Orleans on the road after the after the 49ers had lost the game. So Garoppolo had shown that he could get it done. 349 yards, four touchdowns. Three weeks later, he completed 18 of 22 passes for 285 yards and a 26-21 win at Seattle. So he finished the season with almost 4,000 yards, 3,878 passing yards. Yes, I know in today's football game, I know how today's game is played, that to be called, I guess, an exceptional quarterback that you have to put up numbers probably like 4700 4, those type of things. But look, San Francisco is the most complete team of football. Shall we say so? Yes, I say I, I think we should. They're fifth in the league in total offense, second in the league rushing yards per game. The only reason why they're not number one is because they don't have a quarterback by the name of Lamar Jackson, who can give you a 100, 110 yards per game uh for the quarterback position. But so there's fifth in the league in total offense and they're second in the league in total defense and first in the passing game in terms of passes uh, allowed so this is going to make for a very 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 interesting game between the 49ers and the Kansas City Chiefs which one is going to be which one is going to be but you have you have Patrick Mahomes who's the best quarterback in football and you have the San Francisco defense which is the best defense in football so it's going be it's going to be interesting and I shouldn't even say they have Patrick Mahomes no the Kansas City chiefs have the best offense. In football, mainly because they have Patrick Mahomes at the quarterback position going against Nick Bosa and D. Ford and those guys, Richard Sherman and those guys as the best defense in football with the San Francisco 49ers. So I'm thinking to myself, man, we've got the San Francisco defense versus the Kansas City office, offense. This is almost similar to Barry Bonds facing Randy Johnson in baseball. You know what I'm saying? Where you have the best hitter in baseball against the best pitcher in baseball, who's going to come out ahead? Who's going to get it done? So it'll be interesting to find out who's going to get it done from that standpoint. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Music! Music! Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad glad that you could be with us. Sorry about that. I uh, had to take a quick water break. My mouth was getting kind of perched, and I uh, needed some liquids to keep me going. Yeah, so back to what I was talking about with um, Kansas City and the San Francisco 49ers. Here's one thing I want to go over and talk about this the San Francisco 49ers, you know what? If you're fans of the Washington Dumpskins or the Cincinnati Bengals or the Detroit Lions or the Cleveland Browns, the Dallas Cowboys, hopefully you should be seeing what's going down with the San Francisco 49ers, and it should give you hope. That's the first thing that I thought about when San Francisco won that game. I just thought to myself, you know, I've been a Washington Dumpskins, Snyder Skins fan for a long time, my entire life. So I've been through the glory days. I've been through the three Super Bowl championships. I've been through the argument that, you know what, we were the team of the 80s. Not the San Francisco 49ers, but I've been there with the pride that we, that I had when Doug Williams won that Super Bowl and became the first black quarterback to quarterback a Super Bowl winning team. I was there when Joe Theismann won the Super Bowl. I was there when Mark Rippon did his thing. I was there for all the glory times. I was there. I was proud was, was proud to be a Washington football fan. But ever since Daniel Snyder has gotten to own the football team, Washington has become a complete and utter joke. Just a complete and utter joke. Now, we all know this. And I've always said this before. It's it's been tough being a Washington fan, especially living away from the city, especially being so far away from the area. There's been plenty of times when I've gone to a, a bar or I've gone to a, a sports bar establishment to watch a Washington football game, maybe it be on Monday Night Football or whatever, and they went out there and completely embarrassed themselves. And here I am cheering on this team when people are looking at me like, you you, you really, you, you like these losers? You are actually cheering for these clowns? Really? And I have to sit there and I have to go, yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's I mean, I was there for the Albert Haynesworth lay down game on Monday night football. I was at an establishment when that Monday night game against the Philadelphia Eagles where Michael Vick just completely embarrassed us on national television. And the cameras pointed out when Vick was scrambling around the 10 or 15 yard line that Albert Haynesworth, that fat fucking slob, decided that he was going to lay down and not try to give any effort on one of the plays. And the camera just zoomed in on his fat ass. So... I've been there for all those things. And I'm quite sure there's similar stories with being a Cleveland Browns fan. I'm quite sure there's similar stories of being a Dallas Cowboy fan and you having to put up with Jerry Jones and his nonsense and the ownership of the Detroit Lions and the ownership and the direction of the Cincinnati Bengals. I mean, even before Marvin Lewis got there, the joke that was the Cincinnati Bengals. And when Marvin got there and turned that program around, it got to the point where the expectations were, Can we at least win a playoff game? God damn. So, look, I'm talking to you. I'm talking to you, Mr. Cincinnati Bengal fan. I'm talking to you. Mr. Detroit Lions fan. I'm talking to you. Mr. Cleveland Brown fan. I'm talking, even talking to you. You Dallas Cowboy fan. Look, we should all take a look at what, and even the New York Jets fans, I lumped them into. We should be taking a look at what the San Francisco 49ers are doing. And give us hope, and give us hope. Don't abandon the team yet. Don't abandon the sport yet. Come on back, come on back, we can do this. And you're asking yourself, well, what are you talking about? Do you remember the San Francisco 49ers? Not the Joe Montana days, not the Bill Walsh days, not the Steve Mariucci days. Not the Jerry Rice days. I'm not talking about the Steve Young. I'm not talking about those teams of the 80s and 90s and such, the Terrell Owens days before Terrell lost his mind. I'm not talking about those days. I'm talking about going back to 2016. Do you remember the San Francisco 49ers of that time? They finished that season 2-14. and 14. Chip Kelly with the coach of the team after being fired by Philadelphia the year before and you know, you had Blaine Gabbert as your starting quarterback. You had some guy named Colin Kaepernick who was still there. You had Carlos Hyde. You had Vince McDonald. You had all of these guys, and they stunk. They were lousy. I mean, they were terrible, and they were an utter embarrassment. And I remember at the time, Jed York, the CEO or the owner of the team at that time, he was considered—I'm I'm not joking. If you go back and if you can remember this, remember, he was considered— the worst owner not just in the nfl but in sports this was a guy who was considered even worse than daniel snyder this was guy this was the guy who was considered even a worse owner than jimmy haslam this was a guy in jet york after the 2016 season that he was considered to be the worst owner in sports and in the nfl and the, and what the, the the ford family the uh, whoever owned the uh, uh lions they're still in business. They're still running that team. And Jed York was considered to be worse than them. I remember just listening to people talk about that, and it was like, man, the well, 49ers are doomed. They're doomed. Because Jed York at the time was like 30-something years old. It's like, this guy is not like on his last leg. He ain't looking to sell this team. We're gonna be bad. We're gonna be bad forever. We're gonna be bad for decades. Because Jed York is not giving up ownership. Jed York is not giving up control. We're going to have Jet York as our owner. We're going to stink. We have no chance. You remember? First he came in. This was the year before he came in because Eddie DeBartolo owned a team and gave it to the York family and Denise and his son and this, that, and the other. So when Jet came in, the first thing that he wanted to do after becoming the team's president in 2008 was he went ahead and he didn't like all of the attention that Jim Harbaugh was getting. Remember that? Remember when Jim Harbaugh was the coach of the San Francisco 49ers? He had just taken Stanford to um, uh, uh, power to a bowl game and he bolted for San Francisco and he brought in Alex Smith or he resurrected Alex Smith's career and then he benched him for Colin Kaepernick and they had all the success and they went to the championship game and went to the super bowl and everything so jim harbaugh had that team rolling well Jed york was like well i don't want jim harbaugh to be having all the i don't want jim harbaugh to be getting all of the accolades and the kudos i want some of the spotlight on me it's all about me i want to be the man i want to be this that, and the other so basically he ran off jim harbaugh and then replaced him with jim Tom Sula. four years jim harbaugh jim harbaugh turned that team around Jet York didn't like the fact that he was getting all the attention, fired him, and then brought in Jim uh, uh, Tom, Jim Tom Tomsula. That's the equivalent of Washington. Remember when Daniel Snyder, I forgot who he fired. Maybe he fired, uh, no, he he did fire Marty Schottenheimer after one year and then bring a Steve Spurrier. That was another Jim. But remember the year that Daniel Snyder hired Jim Zorn? And we're sitting up there going, Jim Zorn? You mean the guy who used to play quarterback for the Seattle's Seahawks and throw passes to Steve Largent? I mean a guy with no coordinating experience? A guy who's only been a quarterback coach? A guy who's never been a head coach before? You're going to have him in the same locker room with Albert Hainsworth and some other knuckleheads, and you expect him to command respect? Jim Zorn? What? Jim Tom Sula being hired by the 49ers and Jed-, Jed York. That was the equivalent. And we all know about Jim Tomsula. I knew that was a train wreck where he came in there. Remember Alden Smith? He was with the Raiders. He had played with the 49ers. He was a guy who had an alcohol problem, and because of that, he got tossed from the league or he got tossed from the 49ers. He just couldn't keep himself sober long enough. He was a really good pass rusher. So he got, like, his third chance because the 49ers were like, look, man, we've given you enough chances. Enough is enough. See you later. So Alden Smith went over to the Oakland Raiders. And there was an incident, I guess it was in preseason, where Alden Smith was pulled over for a DUI or something like that. And I remember Jim Tomsula in one of his post his press conferences talking about how sorry he feels for Alden Smith and how he's not gonna give up on him and he's gonna help him and he's gonna be the guy that's gonna get him to turn his life around and He's not going to leave him by his side. He's not going to leave him all by himself. And, you know, I'll be. I'm I'm surprised he didn't put on a Sade song and start singing, When You're Low, I'll be there by your side, Alden. I'm surprised the man didn't say that. He was gushing so much about how much he wanted to help Alden Smith, even though he was no longer with the San Francisco 49er organization. And I remember. I don't know what I was doing. I don't know if I was on the air. I don't know, man. You know, these things kind of, all these years kind of blended into one. But I do remember I was doing something as far as broadcasting is concerned. And I heard that, and I said to myself, and I said this on the air, I said, if you're a San Francisco 49er fan, and you just heard what Tom, Jim Tom Sula said, you should be furious. You should be angry. Because it's like, man, what the hell are you talking about? You're a first-time head coach. You've never had any experience as a coordinator. You've never had any type of head coaching experience before. And you're up there worried about some drunk who's not even on your team anymore. And you're talking about helping him. You're talking about being by his side and not forgetting about him. Hey, man, you better get rid of that noise and get back to you know, helping your football team win. Aldous Smith is no longer on our team. That's the Oakland Raiders' problem. That's not our problem. That's not your problem. You don't coach that guy. You should be concentrating on what you're going to be doing to try to make the San Francisco 49ers win. Hey, man, you don't have Bill Belichick cachet. You don't have have Bill Parcells cachet to be sitting up there talking about. Yeah, you know, in between getting game plans ready and connecting with my own team and forming relationships and showing leadership and showing right direction and doing all these types of things, while I'm doing all of those things, I'm also going to have enough time to make sure that Aldous Smith can go, I don't know, a weekend without going on a bender. Come on, man. No, 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 no. If I'm Jed York, I I call Jim Tom Tomsula in to my office and I'm like, what the fuck are you doing? No, Aldous Smith is no longer your problem. If you want to cancel Alden Smith, do it on your time, not on my time. I'm not paying you to make sure that Aldous Smith can get into a car and not be plastered i'm not i'm not i'm not paying you coach to make sure that all the smith turns his life around by going to the betty Ford clinic that's not your job i, I, don't, I don't see that let me see let me check here uh let me see job readings job application here job expenses for jim tom sula let me see here Win football games, okay, got that. Win championship games, got that in the writing here. Win Super Bowls, okay, got that. Make me a whole lot of money, okay, that. Okay, I see all those things in the contract. It doesn't say anything about changing people's lives around and helping drunks who were former employees of mine. It doesn't say anything about that. Concentrate, Jim, on winning football games. Fuck the whole the Smith nonsense. I distinctly remember that, and I was like, man, this guy ain't going to last. If this is if this is the guy and he was emotional about it too. I mean, this guy was emotional as shit. And I'm like, man, if this is gonna be your if, if this is gonna be what you're gonna be talking about, man, you've got the San Francisco fan base, you guys should be very, very worried. So that was a Jet York hire. Let me see here. Let's run off a guy who got us to a Super Bowl so I can bring in so I can bring in uh, Jim Tom Sula, at least with Dallas's situation when Jerry Jones ran off Jimmy Johnson. At least he had the good sense of bringing Barry Switzer, who at least for two years kept the Dallas Cowboys dynasty afloat, led him to the uh, championship game, and led him to a Super Bowl. So at least Barry Switzer wasn't all that bad. At least Barry Switzer had some type of coaching resume, at least at the college level. At least he, at least he was the leader and commander of something. What was Jim York, Jed York, talking about bringing in Jim Tom Sula? Because it's like, uh, he tried to do a Jerry Jones. Oh yeah, I'll show these guys. I'll show everybody. I don't need, I don't need Jim Harbaugh to win a championship for me. I can do it by myself with this clown by the name of Jim Tom Sula. Oh wait a minute, I can't shit. Hmm. So basically, all of that nonsense was about was look, with me being a Washington fan, I take a look at Jet York, and he finally made the decision. Look, I'm tired of being a laughing stock. I'm tired of my team being a joke. I'm tired of the San Francisco fan base basically hating me. I, I kind of reach rock bottom with this 2-14 and 14 record. I have to go ahead now. I have to fire Chip Kelly. All right, I give up. I give up. I'll go ahead and I'll do the right thing. So he fired Trent Bulkey, which was his general manager, which 49er fans were talking about. What took you so damn long? If I could draw a similarity... It's the same at Daniel Snyder keeping football operations president Bruce Allen far too long. Thank you, Jesus. That man is finally out of the building and no longer doing anything as far as with Washington football is concerned. But so finally, after all of these things went down, after all the criticism, after the embarrassments, Jet York finally said, fuck it. I'm, I've had it. I've waved a white flag. I'm ready to acquiesce. Let me bring in somebody who knows what they're doing. He brought in, and it was really outside-the-box type of thinking. He brought in um, Kyle Shanahan, who was then the offensive coordinator for the Atlanta Falcons, brought him in to be a head coach, brought in John Lynch as the GM, gave them six-year contracts, when a lot of times at that time, the going rate was to give them when you hire a GM or when you hire a coach. It was to give them five-year contracts, but he said, you know what? I want to give both of these guys six-year contracts to let them know that, you know what, this is a situation where I'm willing and able to be patient with you guys, and we see what happened. And after two seasons in which the 49ers didn't do that well under Shanahan and Lynch, he didn't fire them, Jet York didn't fire them, kept with the plan, and we see where the Kansas City Chiefs are now. I'm hoping and praying to Jesus that um, the hiring of Ron Rivera and giving him a five-year deal and basically saying that you have a final say in football football operations and all other things in terms of the personnel and everything, I'm I'm hoping and I'm praying that this could be the start of something for the Washington franchise. Please. I don't know how much time I have left on this earth. I don't know if I have five minutes or five decades. I don't know. I don't, know if, I don't know if I have five seconds or five decades. I know it's going to be somewhere in between. Can I please be proud to be a Washington professional football fan? I I already am not going to say their nickname because it's in poor taste and I don't like saying it. But can I at least have the pride of knowing that we're not an embarrassment, that we're not a joke, that we're not a laughingstock? And the thing is, at least with Daniel Snyder, man, at least – he wants to win. I mean, I will give the man credit for that. I mean, this is not a guy who's sitting there talking about, I just want to collect checks and have be the benefit of having an NFL football team and the money that it brings in. At least he's not that. The man does care about winning. The man grew up as a Washington professional fan. He was a fan right there with Joe Gibbs. He was just like from my generation in terms of seeing the success of the football team. And he wants to he wants to have that come around the bend again. But for the last 20 years, it's been a futile exercise. But maybe, maybe with the example that was set by Jed York after the 2016 season, building that foundation. It didn't happen overnight. But he let his football people do his thing. Please, Daniel, please. You already interfered. All right, you got your quarterback in Dwayne Haskins. We ran this over before with RG3 where Mike Shanahan didn't want him. You guys wanted them. That's one of the reasons why Shanahan drafted Kirk Cousins in the fourth round. Look, look just, just basically, please, let whoever you hire as a president, whether it be Rick Smith, who was the former GM of the Houston Texans, or I don't know, whoever you guys are going to hire, Lewis Riddick off the set of ESPN, whoever, man, let these guys do your job. And maybe, maybe, just maybe, for the 2024 season, we can talk about the Washington football team going to the Super Bowl. And when I say, well, Washington Snyder skins, I can say that
1: with pride. May the Lord bless you real good. May the Lord bless you real good. Won't be up this morning.
0: And welcome to Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things... To do. Damn it! Serena just lost. It. Okay, thanks for joining the program. I'm gone. But goodbye. Have a good week. And fuck all y'all. See ya. No, I'm just joking. Ah, Serena lost in the uh, Australian Open. Damn! Come on, girl. i to do better than that. She's still, still stuck on 23 Grand Slams. Damn, damn, damn! Well, You're a mother. You know, she's getting up there in A, So, all right. All right. All right. I'll, uh, well, I'll survive, I hope. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Some NFL news. Antonio Brown continues to make a complete fool of himself, embarrassed my community and the human race in general. So he turned himself in, according to the Hollywood Police Department. Antonio Brown and his trainer allegedly battered the driver of a moving truck outside of his residence in Florida. The criminal investigation, again, is is ongoing, but Antonio has turned himself in. Uh, The trainer, Glenn Holt, was charged with one count of felony burglary and battery. He was booked into jail Tuesday evening. Antonio Brown's home is located in a gated community in Hollywood. Multiple neighbors told ESPN they've been fed up with the antics coming from the home, including multiple encounters this month. With the police. Wonderful, wonderful. It's already hard enough for a black man to be doing stuff in America anyway. Now we got this fool coming in here in this community making do, doing this kind of nonsense. Come on, man. Give me a break. So since September of 2019, we all know what's been going down with the Antonio Brown, right? There's been allegations. The two women have have accused him of rape, sexual assault, and intimidating texts. One of the women, a former trainer of Antonio's, has filed a civil suit over her claims. Brown had denied all of the allegations also filing a countersuit against his former trainer He's had multiple grievances pending against the Raiders and the Patriots for nearly 40 million in salaries salary He says that he's owed Um, There's been the whole situation even before that with the Pittsburgh Steelers where he was acting like a fool after the end of the game up there Facebook timing the Mike Tomlin speech after the game and all this other stupidity, but of course we have the piece de resistance in terms of his fucking stupidity, his crowning jewel, his greatest hit. It was this recent audio, which he put out, I guess, on his Instagram account of this idiot uh, this with this confrontation with the police, this type of language, this type of behavior in front of his kids.
1: Fucking people can't do that. You fucking white fishball, Get the fuck out of here, you bitch. Come on, puto. up the fuck out of here. Fucking police can't help me you, fucking bitch-ass law. Get the fuck out of here, you fucking pussies. Fucking bitch. Get the fuck out of here. Get the fuck out of my property, you pussies. Fuck out of here. I love you, Poppy. I love you. Go at them bitch-ass police. Get the fuck out of here. Bitch-ass little cop. Look at the little cop. You wish you could take me, you bitch-ass nigga. Fuck out of here. Yeah, get in the back of the police car, fishbowl. And you ain't leaving with shit, bitch. Get the fuck out of here, you bum-ass hoe. So bitch, try to come to steal. Bitch, you gonna leave in the police car. Fuck out of here. Hollywood police, get the fuck out of here. Bitch ass niggas, get out of here. Fuck out of here. Niggas can't even get my key. Get the fuck out of here. Bitch ass niggas. Crackers, man. These crackers don't get no justice for no nigga, man. Fuck out of here. Get the fuck out of here. Get out of my property. Broke ass motherfucker. Sir, sure, can you get the keys? Can't do nothing. Get your bitch ass out of here, man. Bitch ass nigga. No, you want to take me to make the news. Congrats, you made the news, bitch ass nigga.
0: This man's a fool. This man's a complete another fool. I don't want to hear anything about, oh my goodness, he needs help and oh my goodness. I don't have any sympathy at all for Antonio Brown. I don't have one drop, one ounce of sympathy or sorrow. For Antonio Brown, this man is a fucking clown. This guy is a fucking fool. This guy is a this guy is Sambo walking up and down, step and fetch. This is what this guy is. Unfucking believable. You're gonna talk that way in front of your kids, your little kids. You're gonna talk that way in front of your kids to the mother of your kids. How fucking stupid are you? Now I can use I can talk in this tone and I can talk and use this kind of language. Why? Because I don't have kids. But if I did have little kids, you're damn sure I wouldn't be talking and using this type of language. And I definitely would not be using that type of language and talking to the mother of her kids in front of them like that. Now, when the kids are away and you want to go into a private area and y'all want to have at it, and you want to use that type of language toward her, be my guest. Go for it. Don't recommend it. Don't know the relationship that you two have. I don't know. If she sets you off, I don't know if she does it on purpose. I don't know anything about the relationship. So as long as you don't put your hands on her, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names are never going to hurt me. If she's from that mentality, then you can use that coarse language and you can talk to her like that, fine. But do it in the privacy where there's no one around to hear you, especially your young children, you fucking idiot. So unbelievable, and the nerve and the stupidity to broadcast this for everybody to see so basically what he's saying is look everybody look how Sambo i am huh look how uncle thomas i'm being look how ignorant i am ain't i great ain't i cool ain't i bad ain't i keeping it real look how fucking stupid i am Woohoo! look at the language that i'm using in front of my kids ain't i bad motherfucker ain't i a bad man ain't i cool what NFL, team, what NFL team can resist this? <laughs> I mean, just, I, 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 no one there. There was nobody in that circle, no one. And maybe they have, maybe they've tried, who knows? I don't know. But unbelievable. Guys, stop feeling sorry for Antonio Brown. I have no interest in Antonio Brown. I have no interest in helping him. That's none of my business. Look, man, I got enough, me, you, and everybody else in this world, we got enough problems of our own. If one of my main problems, if helping Antonio Brown or feeling sorry for Antonio Brown, if worrying about Antonio Brown was anywhere in my top 20 things that I need to do in my life, I am the luckiest human being who's ever walked the face of the earth, not Lou Gary. If Antonio Brown's problems somehow come into the lexicon of my life, I must be one happy, great dude, with one great guy going on in my life. Damn, man, give me a fucking break with that nonsense. I feel sorry. Antonio, Brown that's been the narrative. You know, when you listen to and you talk to and you read all the things surrounding Antonio Brown. He needs help. Antonio needs help. This is a man who's crying out for help. And we need to give it to him. I feel sorry for him. I really, really do. He's got children. And he's talking that way in front of his, his children. This is so terrible. Just awful. Give me a break, man. Give me, give me a break. According to Celebrity Net Worth, Antonio Brown is worth twenty five million dollars, man. Antonio Brown is a public figure. If Antonio Brown wanted to get some help, Antonio Brown has the money. He has the resources. He has the connections. He has people with those with those connections who can give him the best of everything. He can give him the best of help. And guess what? All he needs to do is reach out, and I'll be there. Reach out. All he needs to do is go out and seek the help. He can get the best treatment, and he can get back to being and getting an opportunity to go back to playing football. All he needs to do is realize this, but he's too sick or stupid or whatever to realize that. Now, look, man, I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not a psychologist. I don't know anybody with mental illness. I don't know any of these things, so please save your pop psychology of you don't know what he's doing, through, or you don't know what mental illness is all about and all this kind of stuff. Man, bull fucking shit, man. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I still got time right now to be feeling sorry for Antonio Brown. I don't have time to feel sorry for someone who's, got, who's worth $25 million, who has the advantages, who has the opportunities that could get the best care. He could go to the best facilities. He could go to the best help-you-out doctors. He's got the money. He's got the fame. He's got the adulation. He's got people in this corner who can do that. So if he decides not to do that, if he decides to act this way, fuck him, man. I don't got time for that bullshit. And I get sick and tired when people are up here where they feel sorry for these celebrities. Oh, this is so awful, and this is so terrible, and I feel sorry for them. Man, let me tell you fucking something. I don't give a damn anybody who's got that type of money, anybody who's got that type of fame, and has the avenues to take advantage of those things by helping themselves. And they decide not to screw them, man. I don't give a damn what happened to them. I don't care in five years from now, five minutes from now, five seconds from now. I don't care if Antonio Brown ends up in a cage or a grave. I don't care. Just like I don't care if he finally wakes up, seeks medical treatment, reconciles with his wife and repents his sins and goes back to a football team and finishes off his career where he can get get himself into the Hall of Fame. Either one of those scenarios, I don't fucking care i don't you know why more care about i care about folks who are right now on skid row do you know how many homeless people that we have not just in america but all over the world who are right now suffering from mental illness who can't catch a break who are on the streets because they don't have a a, the ability to take care of themselves so these guys are homeless they're being preyed upon putting put in bad situations Folks who are in jail right now who are harmed to themselves and others because they can't get the medical help. They can't get the mental help that they need because they're not Antonio Brown or they're not worth $25 million. Do you know that? There's not tens or hundreds. There's literally thousands upon thousands of those people here in America. Hell, there's probably thousands of those people on skid row in L.A. who are begging, who are trying, who are doing everything that they can to try to help themselves, to try to get themselves better, who are having mental health issues, who need people's health, who need the sympathy, for those people who are begging and pleading and hoping and praying and feeling sorry for Antonio Brown, transfer all of those emotions from that fucking Sambo over to the folks who actually need it, the ones who financially can't take care of themselves, who don't have loved ones who can take care of themselves, who can get them the help that they need. I'm not wasting any of my time. Wasting any of my effort. I'm not wasting any of my emotions toward Antonio Brown in a way that's gonna that's going to elicit sympathy, sorrow, that we need to help this guy. Get the fuck out of here. This clown wants to go ahead and do this from his north from his from his mansion out there in Hollywood. I'm supposed to be feeling sorry for this guy. Almost reminded me of Ronda Rousey. Remember when Ronda Rousey lost the um she lost her bantamweight title when Holly Holmes kicked her head off down in Australia, and she went into seclusion for a while. And I always knew that I always knew that Ronda Rousey was a fraud when you compare the accolades and everything that was being placed upon her the nonsense about, you know, she's a top five band on weight regardless of race, or excuse me, regardless of gender, that if she fought in the men's division, she would be a top five band on weight, that if she was pound for pound the greatest athlete, that she was the greatest pound for pound mixed martial artist in the world. I remember when they were doing all that bullshit that she could beat up Floyd Mayweather in a fight, all of that stupidity. When, when the height of Ronda Rousey was in full, full gear going 300 miles per hour, And then all of that came to a crashing halt when Holly Holmes kicked her head off down in Australia, and she went underground for a while, I guess, and pouted and brooded and everything. So when she finally emerged, first of all, she didn't say congratulations to Holly Holmes, and... For a girl who was supposed to be, or excuse me, for a woman who was supposed to be the role model for so many young girls who were supposed to see her example and become inspired to be a greater person. Serena Williams didn't inspire that with anybody, but she was winning grand slams left and right, right? She wasn't doing anything like that. Oh, but Ronda Rousey was. So when Ronda Rousey finally, when it was, you know, when, you know, she was exposed at the fraud that she was. She went on Ellen's show, and uh, I remember that crime. She was like, "Oh, you know what? I, you know, when I first lost the title, and I wanted to, for a second there, I wanted to kill myself because what am I without the title? What am I without the? You know, I mean, who's gonna like me now with, with me not having the title? So I looked at Travis, Travis Brown, who was a UFC fighter, and and I think they got married, and they were going out together. They eventually got married. So she was like, oh, and so I looked at Travis and I said, boy, I better start having some kids with him because, you know, this, that, and the other. And I just thought to myself, that is the most fucking pathetic, that, that's the most pathetic thing I think I've heard it from an athlete in a long, long time. Seriously. I, I didn't know whether to laugh or say, sh- I think I did both. I think I shook my head and I laughed at the same time. It was just like, it was one of the most pathetic things I've ever heard. I mean, here is a grown woman And she's up there talking about for a second there after she lost the fight, she thought about killing herself because why? What am I without the belt? Who's going to like me without the belt? Who's going to be my friends without the belt? Damn, bitch, you kind of realize that, you know what, when you do lose the belt, that's when you know who your friends are. If you're worried about losing friends after you lose the belt, guess what, Rhonda? They weren't really your friends. And this nonsense about, I'm going to lose a fight, so I'm going to kill myself? Damn! You know, Ellen giving her tissues. Oh, that's okay. Here, here's some tissues. That's okay. You're all right. I would have been like, woman, what are you talking about? Then, it gets even more absurd and more stupider. This woman then says, yeah, so I looked over at Travis and I said, I better start having some kids. Yeah, there you go. Because the best way to stop suicidal thoughts and tendencies is to go ahead and have kids. There you go. Let's have someone who's mentally unstable to the point where she's going to be thinking about suicide. Let's have her become a mother. That'll be the cure for all of those thoughts and feelings about killing yourself. So if you're a female and if you ever have thoughts about killing yourself, I've got the well-known cure for it. Go ahead and and get impregnated by somebody. Become a mother. That'll solve all your problems. Oh, my God. And I was just sitting there thinking to myself going, you've got to be fucking kidding me. This woman is probably one of the most, at the time, one of the most recognizable people in the Northern Hemisphere. You've got connections, you've got money, you're in a sport where, you know what, you don't have to go ahead and fight every other week or you don't have an off-season. You could take a year off, you could take two years off, you could take six months off for you to get better. And you have the resources, you have the opportunities, you have the contacts, you have the people who care about you to where they can place you with the best of the best. And you don't have to worry about kids, you don't have to worry about a job, you don't have to worry about paying your bills, you don't have to worry about anything. You've got endorsements, you've got your UFC money, you've got everything that you need to make yourself better. So please spare me the bullshit about you crying and talking about throwing it out there for a sympathy play of, oh yeah, I thought about killing myself, only for a quick second, because I don't want you guys to think that I'm crazy. So it was just for a quick second. And then the thought went away when I realized that, you know what, if I became a mother, then these thoughts and feelings will go away. The one of the most ridiculous, pathetic things I've ever heard from, a, from an athlete, male, female, gay, straight, black, white, whatever. And that all ties back to Antonio Brown. We should feel sorry for him. We should feel sympathy for him. He needs help. I'm not wasting one fucking ounce of I'm not wasting one second of sleep on Antonio Brown. I'm not worried at all about Antonio Brown. Colin Kaepernick can't get a fucking job in the NFL because he exercises his First Amendment rights to kneel. And we're worried about some ass clown like fucking Antonio Brown. I don't know. You know what? This has nothing to do with his father and mother, this upbringing. Mr. and Mrs. Brown, he should be absolved from any type of criticism. This happened from Antonio Brown when he was a guy who got fame and he got fortune and it went to his head. This has nothing to do with their upbringing. This has nothing to do with his parenting. I don't blame the parents or anything like that. This is a grown man making grown man decisions. This is a man who decided that he wanted to be a fool when he was a grown man, it had nothing to do with parental uh, the, the raising of his parents. So I just this Antonio Brown thing is just like you know. So he turned himself into the police. Who cares? Who cares? I have. No, but then again, if you're ESPN, I thought you're sticking to sports, right? So if you're ESPN, are you going to talk about this? I don't get it. If it's Jimmy Jimmy Chappelle, are you going? Is this something? Is this a story? Is this something that you're just going to report? Like, oh yeah, uh, let me see here. In news today, uh, Antonio Brown turned himself in. Um, he's alleged of beating up a driver from the moving company, moving on to the next subject. So it's is it gonna be like that? Because if you utter one word, yay or nay, if you give if you allow your anchors or the people who work at that station, if you give them one opportunity to voice their opinion. What's going to be happening? Because remember, this is stick to sports, right? Isn't the ESPN supposed to be sticking to sports? So we should be calling the highlights of the games. There's NBA games. So we should be talking about people's baskets. And so we should be talking about games and, and everything like that. Stuff that involves police or arrest or anything like that. That's off, that's off limits, right? Right? So whether the anchor comes on and says Antonio's a fool, fuck him, or... Of course, you're not going to be saying fuck him on uh, ESPN. But basically, if they have whatever type of opinion that they have, feel sorry for him, he needs help, or forget about him, those things shouldn't be uttered on ESPN, right? Right? Because after all, we're only sticking to sports. We're only sticking to sports. Unbelievable. So, yeah, man. Antonio Brown, as I mentioned before, I don't give a damn about you. Get some help. Hey, man, again, if you... Get some help, if you want to get some help, fine, but if you want to continue to continue to spiral uh, downward cage or a grave, doesn't bother, doesn't, doesn't matter to me either way. World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to discuss today in the world of sports. Great to be back. So happy to be back talking sports with you and everything else in between. Welcome to the age of the Zion. Zion Williamson made his NBA debut for the New Orleans Pelicans Wednesday night against my San Antonio Spills. San Antonio won 121 117. Lamarcus Aldridge had 32 points, 14 rebounds. DeMar DeRozan added 20 points, but of course. That wasn't the story. The story was, of course, Zion finished with 22 points on 8 of 11 shooting, made all four of his three-point attempts in 18 minutes. He also had five turnovers. He had seven rebounds and three assists. Williamson made his. Williams made his. Williamson'ski made his first NBA basket at the 10:35 mark of the second quarter, and it was all quiet on the uh, home front. I was watching the game. I was like, okay, you know, I'm enjoying the Spurs, but man, you know, I understand that there's. Minutes restriction for Zion. So, okay, I get it. So, he checked in in the fourth quarter, and then all hell broke loose. Going into that game, going into the fourth quarter, he had scored five points in 11 minutes, and then he scored 17 straight points for New Orleans in a span of 3.08. So, he checked into the game with San Antonio leading 99-91, and when he finally checked out of the game with 5.23 left after playing six minutes and 37 seconds, the lead for San Antonio was only one, and then after one of those three-point shots, New Orleans actually led. I think it was like one hundred nine, one hundred seven, or something like that. But heck of a game, man! Heck, heck of a game. So my impressions of his first NBA regular season game. Um, I thought I thought he lived up to the hype without really. I thought he he really didn't live up to the hype, but I understand where people were coming from. Let me explain. He, the only reason why I say he didn't live up to the hype wasn't his fault at all. What I mean by that was the the hype coming in was that even in limited minutes, Zion was going to have a really big impact on the game. And except for that three-minute stretch, and I know that's important. I know that's important. It was huge. I understand that. But my my thing was I thought that leading up to the fourth quarter, I thought that maybe he was pedestrian at best, understandable, understandable, the guy hadn't played an NBA basketball game, the guy hadn't played basketball in a meaningful way in what, five or six months, seven months, so I get it, I understand it, so it's not like I'm criticizing Zion, but it was like, okay, I mean, you know, you could see that he wasn't in the best of shape, he wasn't, he was in good shape, he was in shape, he just wasn't an NBA game shape, he wasn't in the type of shape that Many people saw him in at Duke. Let's put it that way. And again, it's not his fault. It's not because he was lazy or eating too many hot dogs or went to the Buster Douglas after he beat Mike Tyson the way of living. I'm not saying that. He didn't go to the Luis Ortiz uh, type of uh, diet, um, Zion. I'm not saying that. It was just because when you have surgery like that and you're not being able to play regular season basketball, and we're, what, now? what, 40-plus games into the season, I mean, it's it's, going to take some while. And again, he's going to be on a minute restriction. So how much can he get back into really good game shape? I mean, this season, he's not going to be playing 35, 34 minutes a game. He's just not. I don't know, really, the way the Pelicans are treating him. I don't know if he's ever going to be that type of guy that's going to be averaging 36, 37 minutes. Even if he comes back in the next year or two or three and everything's fine and everything's dandy, I don't think that, The way the league is going right now, the way the league is trending right now, I don't think Zion's going to be that guy that's going to play 82 games and average 34, 35 minutes per game. So the the impact was electric. The impact was something else. But I just thought that you had that one big
1: kaboom,
0: and then it just kind of fizzled away. So it was just like nothing, 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 kaboom, nothing, nothing, nothing. Again, I'm not saying that's Zion's fault. I'm not saying that, uh, you know, it has anything to do with his work ethic or what type of person he is. It's just, that's what it was like. That's, it's going to be like that. like probably for the next two to three months in the NBA for Zion and the Pelicans, there's going to be, he's not going to be playing back-to-back games. And it's just going to be a gradual ascension of his time. And I think, what, maybe 24 Maybe near the end, he'll be within getting 24 to 40, 24 to 20 minutes a game, somewhere around there. He'll probably be averaging at the very most, playing half the game. Uh, So six minutes uh, here, six minutes there. So I, I think that, again, it was something where, again, it was no fault of his own because of the minute restrictions, but his impact, let's put it this way. His hype left me wanting more. Let's put it that way. I'm curious. I'm curious to see what he does. If, if it was his first game, kid's 19 years old, a little jittery, understandable. So as he gets a little bit more acclimated to the game, he gets a little bit more more comfortable working with his teammates. I think, I think him and Alonzo Ball, the way Alonzo can pass that ball, I mean, there's going to be some fun nights where it's almost like, you know how Chris Paul throws those alley-oops, how he used to throw those alley-oops? And he still does. I think Lonzo can become that type of lob thrower at the rim. And when you have someone who can get it, like Zion Williamson, I think going forward, if Lonzo is going to be on the team for New Orleans, that's going to be a very, very fun tandem to watch. And Lonzo's going to win some assist titles thanks to uh, the athleticism that those guys are going to be checking in with when we were talking about throwing those alley-oops to guys like Jackson Hayes, and they keep Jackson Hayes, and also Zion Williamson, so... Really good. So the question is, because again, he's done a limit restrictions. He played 18 minutes. He came out with 523 left to go in the fourth quarter. Still a winnable ball game. New Orleans is still trying to somehow some way sneak into the playoffs. I know that they're in 12th, but they're only four games back of San Antonio for eighth place in the Western Conference playoffs. So this is not something where New Orleans is in tank mode. It'll be interesting to see moving forward near the trade deadline what they're going to do with Drew Holiday and to see if they can turn him into some type of assets. They already got a boatload of draft picks when they traded Anthony Davis to the Los Angeles Lakers. So moving forward this season, and we saw that Holiday was with Zion at the end of the game at the podium, helping him out in in that regard. So we're talking about maybe one of the reasons why the Pelicans wouldn't trade uh, Drew is because of the leadership that he can bring. I mean, we've always known in terms especially with the NBA becoming younger and younger, or these guys coming out after only one season, that if they go to a team and they're expected to, quote-unquote, turn around a franchise, and we're speaking about guys who are 18, 19, 20 years old, it's always good for that team to have some type of veteran presence. Kevin Garnett has said over and over and over again that his career could have been a lot more different if it wasn't for Sam Mitchell when he first came to the Minnesota Timberwolves that Sam Mitchell took him under his wing and taught him how to be a professional, taught him and matured him and um, helped him become the basketball player that he was. I think Drew Holiday could be that guy for Zion in terms of showing him how to become a professional. Again, the guy is 18 years old. And again, Well, we're speaking about a franchise type player. We're speaking about a commodity in Zion that is so important, not just to the franchise of New Orleans, but just to the health and the growth in the future of the NBA. I think not just the New Orleans Pelicans and David Griffin and Alvin Gentry and Gail Benson, but also Adam Silver and others should be paying close attention to making sure that you know what? This is a value, this is a gem we have. This is an unbelievable talent that we have. This is a transformational talent that we have. This is something that we can, for the next decade or so, really use to our advantage to help us grow our sport, not just domestically, but also internationally. There was some talk with David Stern, God rest his soul, about you know maybe having the NBA go overseas and maybe participate in foreign countries. Well, if that goal is still is still in the works or is still a priority or something that Adam Silver wants to do, Zion is going to be a part of that as the game Game Grows Internationally. And you have such superstars such as Luka Doncic and Giannis Abdinakupo who are coming over from all of these other countries and introducing the game to those countries. You put the NBA in those type of markets or those type of countries. I mean, those guys are going to be important. Zion is going to be part of all of that moving forward to expand the game of basketball expand the NBA so you have to be careful with this guy 19 years old and I mentioned before Blake Griffin who is the I guess you could say he's part of the Zion Williamson family in terms of his explosiveness When he came into the league and this was a guy who was dunking over people and he was dunking over cars and he was the highlight film And this was a guy who was 6'8 235 pounds and he was an explosive athlete and everything Well, look at him now about seven, eight years down the road. I mean, Blake Griffin has had injury problems. Blake Griffin missed his entire rookie season or his first year out of college in Oklahoma because of injury. And Blake Griffin, while he was explosive, for a short period of time, Blake Griffin is not going to be that guy going into what that was, ninth or 10th year. The Blake Griffin that we saw with the Los Angeles Clippers b- being coached by Vinny Del Negro and then moving on to Doc Rivers where they picked up Chris Paul and DeAndre Jordan and those guys when they were lob city, that Blake Griffin is gone. That Blake Griffin is no more. I don't care how successful a knee surgery or how successful he treats the ailment of his knee, that Blake Griffin is not coming back. So we're going to lose that explosiveness. We're going to lose that highlight reel. We're going to lose Blake Griffin getting people out of their seats. That Blake Griffin is not coming back. So when we're speaking about someone like Zion, we want to maximize his explosiveness. We want to maximize how uber-athletic he is. This guy is a freak of nature, and we want to harness that, and we want to keep that going as long as possible. And Zion doesn't take plays off. Zion, forget taking games off in terms of his effort, his intensity, his passion, his drive. Forget games. Zion doesn't take plays off. Now, I think that as he gets older, that he'll learn kind of how to, how to pace himself so he doesn't go all Dwayne Wade on, on folks where, you know, he's, he's hitting the floor like 15 times a quarter, which eventually takes his toll. Especially if you're speaking about a guy who right now is about, I would guess what, he's 6'6". How much do you think he weighs? About 290? 295? If he was 285, maybe 270, 275 in college, and you're talking about a guy who's had knee surgery and he really had that opportunity to really exercise and really do the fitness that he needs to get into to be in NBA-ready shape, you're probably looking at a guy now who's approaching 290 with that explosiveness. So it's 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 something where the league, like I said, it's a collaborative effort with the Zion Williamson deal. So I'm not too bent out of shape or I'm not too angry that he came out when he did. I'm, I'm not. I understand that, uh, again, you have to protect this guy. You have to make sure that you get the most out of this investment. I mean, potentially, let's put it this way. Potentially, Williamson is, is the most important and valuable asset the league has moving forward. When LeBron finally retires, and LeBron, oof, the way he's playing right now, gee whiz. But when LeBron finally retires, this league is going to be turned over to Giannis, Luka, and Zion. Hopefully. We're taking a look at the p- potential faces. I've mentioned this before in another podcast. You take a look at the potential faces of the league, say, for the 2022-23 season or the 2025-26 season. I mean, you have such candidates as John Morant Mar- John or Jason Tatum or Anthony Edwards in Georgia, Trey Young, De'Aaron Fox, Donovan Mitchell, Nikola Jokic, Ben Simmons, this kid Cade Cunningham, Jalen Green, who are in, who are seniors in high school, Imani Bates, the sophomore up in uh, Michigan, who's supposed to be the next, the second coming possibly of LeBron James. You have Chet Holmgren, who right now is a seven foot one. Guy who can shoot and he can dribble, he can pass, and he's being recruited by Georgetown. Please, Jesus, let this young man go to Georgetown. But so you have, you even have names that we don't even know about right now. There's going to be guys who are going to be top five, top six, top seven players for the uh, players in the NBA for the 2022 23 season that we don't even know about right now. There's going to be someone eight years down the road that's going to be a top five guy. We don't know who he is. We don't know. He could be from China. He could be from Finland. He could be from Australia. He could be from Henderson, Nevada. He could be from St. George, Utah. He could be from Hawaii. He could be from Alaska. We don't know. The way the league is growing, the way that the love of basketball grows, not just, again, through the states, but also there could be a guy in Canada. We don't know. There could be some guy right now in Vancouver, who's like seven years old that up to 15 years from now is going to be dominating the league. There could be a guy right now in the suburbs of Toronto, of uh, Toronto, Canada, that 10 years from now is going to be the most, number one draft pick and being compared to the greatest basketball players who've ever come around the band who've been drafted. Who knows? Who knows? But when all of that happens, the faces of the league should be Giannis, Luca, Zion. And in, one or two of these other guys that I just mentioned before, Morant, 12-time Tatum, Nikola Jokic, but those guys will be part of the mix. So if you're the NBA and again if you're the New Orleans Pelicans, man, this is uncharted water. How do you how do you work with someone like Zion? How do you how do you get the most of his potential when we've never seen a player like this? In NBA history, at 19 years old, man, no one, nobody, forget 19, 21, 25, 27, there's been no one in this leagues in the league's history that has had this most, that has been this type of unique athlete basketball player. Never. I mean, you've had guys like Will Chamberlain coming and tearing the league up. You've had guys like George Mikan When the league was growing, coming and tearing the league up. You had guys like Shaquille O'Neal coming and tearing the league up. You had guys like Michael Jordan coming and tearing the league up. You had players like Magic Johnson and Larry Bird coming, and they were unicorns and tearing the league up. But never has there been this blend of explosiveness, strength, leaping ability. And a guy who's 6'6, 285 pounds, I guess if you really think about it, his optimal playing weight. Is what, 275? 270, maybe? The way he jumps, the second jump, his explosiveness, his power, his strength? We've never seen anything like that in the NBA. Never. This guy has the leaping ability and explosiveness of Vince Carter with the girth and the strength of Shaquille O'Neal. How do you how do you defend that? I mean, Luca is like, okay, this is what Larry Bird could be like if he was playing. In the 21st century. Okay, Giannis is something where it's kind of like he's LeBron light. Or he's Kevin Durant without a jump shot. With a little bit more athleticism. There is nobody even close that we can compare with Zion. Nothing. I don't know. Charles Barkley. No, Charles Barkley did not have the unbelievable strength, size, and athleticism that Zion has. Even if you compare eras, to where Barkley coming out. Yeah, he was six, four and a half. Realistically, but he listed them as 6'5", 250. He would be able to take the ball off the board and he can go, go coast to coast and, and dunk on people and who was going to get in the way of that freight train and everything. Zion is an entirely different animal than Charles Barkley. I guess you could say he's Charles Barkley 4.0, not just 2.0, 4.0, if you take a look at his size and his strength and his athleticism. So if you're the New Orleans Pelicans, what do you do with this guy? How do you get the most out of this guy's potential? Do you play him at small ball five? The way the NBA is going right now, do you put him at the center position and let him do his thing? If you take a look at some of the centers in the NBA, except for maybe Steven Adams who can't score but could wear on you because he's so doggone big and strong. Maybe someone like a Nikola Jokic who's big and strong, but he's also got a perimeter game to him. You look at someone like Joel Embiid. Maybe with the exception of those guys, is there anybody right now that Zion from the center position wouldn't be able to guard and have success with? So do you play him a small ball five, especially with that, his athleticism? He doesn't need to be seven feet tall. He doesn't need to be six foot 11. The Guy can still jump over everybody, and he's so fast off his feet, and he's so powerful when he does it. man. He could be like a bowling ball out there getting rebounds. Guy, guy can be flattening everybody legally. So what do you do with this guy? How do we know what type of shape he's going to be in? Well, 285 is too much. Okay, but we've never seen anybody like this. We've never seen anybody this size and this strong. So is this playing weight 260? Is this playing weight 265? When people are sitting there and we try to compare and we talk about normally if someone is coming in 6'6", 285, 6'6", 275, whoa, no. What do you think most NBA players are at 6'6"? I mean, we're speaking of guys maybe from a thin side. We're thinking about guys who are maybe shooting guards, small forwards. So we're looking at guys at the very most weighing 220, 225, something like that. Zion is 6'6", 280. <laughs> Zion is the best athlete in the game right now. Zion is the best athlete who's ever coming to the league right now, and he's weighing two eighty-five, and he's not even in basketball shape. What is the correct? What is the correct weight for this guy? I knew Barkley was going to have problems, but Bar- Charles Barkley didn't work out in the off-season. Charles Barkley. Let me remember a, a interview with Roy Firestone. Danny Ainge was talking about, uh, Danny Ainge was on the um, show when Barkley was in Phoenix, and Firestone was like, you know, there's there's word out there that you can bench more than Charles Barkley, to which Danny Ainge said, yeah, I can, but if there's going to be a rebound to be had, Charles Barkley's going to get it, not me. If, if there was if there was a contest to see who's going to be getting that rebound, Charles Barkley's going to get it, not me. So basically what, what Ainge is saying is, is that Barkley was naturally strong. Barkley didn't have to work out. Barkley in the offseason when he was with Philadelphia, he didn't work out. And I remember Jack Ramsey going, you know what? That guy, by the time he hits his seventh or eighth year in the league, he's going to have back problems carrying all that weight because a lot of it was out of shape weight because Barkley didn't train in the offseason. Zion is going to train in the offseason. NBA guys now, they do train in the offseason, and they do have nutritionists, and they do have – uh, uh shooting coaches and weightlifting coaches and running coaches and life coaches and all of these outside the box ways to train and be committed and cry. you know all these all of these ways to keep themselves in shape. So with Zion doing all of those things, what do you think is the optimal way that's gonna be? If we want to get Zion in the best shape humanly possible, weight wise, what does that mean? But because if it means 265, should we still be worried? The guy who's doing weighing that is only six foot six inches tall and plays like he does—is that going to inhibit the length of his career? Well, you can't get him any lower, right? I mean, you can't get Zion down to two twenty. You can't get Zion down to two thirty-five. You just can't. So, what do you do with the guy? How do you? What do you? How do you move forward? And if it's like okay, if it's optimal size and weight, is going to be. 6'6, six, six, 270. What does that mean in terms of us playing him? As I mentioned before, I don't think Zion, I don't think Zion ever in his career is ever going to be a guy who consistently plays back-to-back games. I just don't think he's going to do it. And I think the way that they protect these guys now, I don't Zion is not going to be a guy who's going to play 82 games ever. I think I think in his career, I think in this career, Zion will probably at the very most Play 72, 70 games at the very most. Most years, I bet you he's going to average maybe 67, 68 games played a year. He's not going to play back-to-back. He's not going to play on the fourth day of a of five-day stand. He's just not. That's not going to be the way the Pelicans are going to treat this guy. And I don't blame him. And I think for the league, that's a good thing. Oh man, how can you? You, you want him to play 82 games? I don't want Zion Williamson to play 82 games a year, average 38 minutes a game, 35 minutes a game, and have the Zion that we know and love for only seven seasons. I don't. I just don't want to do that. I don't want to see Zion Williamson year 11, and we're talking about, man, remember how explosive he was back in the day with knee, knee problems robbed him of that? I would rather have Zion play average 68 games a year and be the Zion that we know and love for 11 or 12 years. Now, naturally, his athleticism is going to decrease. I mean, we've got this gem. Hopefully, if we get it right, hopefully, if the league gets it right, hopefully, if the Pelicans get it right, hopefully, we'll have this Zion at his optimal peak for the first five, six years, and then years seven through 10, it'll be a slight decline, but he'll still be unbelievable before he'll finally start to taper off, and I'm quite sure by then, there will be another super duper unbelievable star that will come in and capture our imagination and attention but i want that zion at the way that we see him now i want him playing like that until he's 26 27 yeah so if you have to play him only 68 games a year and play him an average of 32 33 minutes during those 68 games that's much better than that's much better than using him up it's almost like a running back in college or a running back in the NFL, you know, do you want to do you want to run this guy? 30 times a game for the first four or five years of his career So by by eight or nine by year eight or nine He's washed up and done or do you want to kind of spread it out to where when he's 29 30 years old He's still got some tires left to do some damage for your team. So Interesting thing that's going to be going on with Zion, but uh, last night was very, or Wednesday night, because by the time this drops, it'll be Friday, but um, yeah, man, it was an interesting time to watch Zion Williamson, and really ushering in uh, something new, something fresh in the NBA, and believe me, with the, some of these games that are going down, and with Kevin Durant not playing, and some of the other stars that are going to be hobbled, and with the introduction of Zuluka another, I mean the the introduction of Zion Williams is very much needed. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Conor McGregor is back, or is he? Hmm. Main event of UFC 246 on Saturday at the T-Mobile Mobile Arena here in Las Vegas. Conor McGregor blasted, took apart Donald Cerrone, Cowboy Cerrone, in 40 seconds and marked the second fastest win of McGregor's career. The quickest being the 13-second knockout of Jose Aldo in December. 2015. You want the highlights of the fight? Did you watch the fight? Let me give you some of the highlights of the fight. McGregor came forward with a huge swinging left hand. Cerrone ducked it, and the two men went into a clinch. Okay. McGregor hit Cerrone with his shoulder and his elbow, which Cerrone was said surprised him and busted him up early. McGregor then landed a knee, and then when they separated from the clinch, McGregor caught him with a kick to the chin. And right there, I said, Welp, end of this fight. Simone was wobbled. He went down to his knees. McGregor continued the onslaught until Herb Dean pulled off, called off the bout, and ruled it a TKO. So for McGregor and the UFC, mission accomplished. Congratulations, guys. That plan was executed flawlessly. Very nice. Very nice. So, you know, it was everything that the UFC and Conor McGregor wanted. It was a situation where. The guy hadn't fought in a couple of years or hadn't fought in over a year. The last time he fought was against Khabib Nurmagomedov, and he lost. He hadn't won a fight in almost three years. That whole ridiculous nonsense with McGregor. So McGregor hasn't, or excuse me, the whole nonsense with fighting Floyd Mayweather. So Conor hasn't been the Conor McGregor that we know and love or that you know and love since he defeated Eddie Alvarez at Madison Square Garden to become the first guy to hold both because uh, belt simultaneously in twenty since twenty sixteen. So the comeback fight, especially after all the bad press that Connor's been going through, trying to beat up old men, stealing people's cell phones, or destroying cell phones, throwing dollies at, at buses, allegations of uh battery on women. So <clears throat> there was reports that during the training camp with leading up to the fight with Nurmagomedov that he was drinking every day and not putting any work toward the fight. I'm sorry, man. You don't look like that. I'm sorry. I saw that fight. Conor McGregor did not look like a guy who was going on drinking binges. I look like a guy who goes on drinking binges and eating binges and not working out binges and laying around doing nothing binges. By the way, that's going to stop. But, uh, yeah, I, I think that they were embellishing a little bit But basically, he didn't put the time and effort that he should have when you're facing a guy like Newmarket Bedolf, especially after McGregor had been out for the time that he had uh, from the octagon. But, you know, basically, hey, look, it, it was something to where this was something that the UFC and Conor McGregor needed. In fact, when I heard that he was fighting Donald Cerrone, I was like, okay, because many people were like, well, you know, is he going to be serious? Is Conor going to be serious about fighting again? Because after all the money he made against Mayweather, $100 million plus, and then you know, he's got these other things going on, and he's kind of lost his mind. Is he really into fighting anymore? Does he really want to fight anymore? When he signed to fight Donald Cerrone, I said, you know what? I think he is. If he wanted to sign to fight Medoff or someone who was really, really tough, then I would have said, you know what? This guy's looking for just one more payday. Basically, if he wanted to fight Khabib again, I would say, you know what? He's looking for one more payday and he wants to get the hell out of here. That's basically what he was doing. I knew that when Ronda Rousey came back after she fought Holly Holmes and lost, and then she came right back in and was going to fight Amanda Nunez, I was like, she doesn't want to fight anymore. She doesn't even want to, she doesn't even want to have this fight. She knows that she can't beat Amanda New Year's. She knows she's going to lose. She doesn't want to fight anymore. So she's just going to get one more big payday and then she's going to CC you later. There's always There was already talk at the time that she, she was going to the WWE. So she doesn't want to fight anymore. She just wants one more payday. She'll get her ass kicked. She'll accept the ass whooping that she's going to get from Amanda New Year's. She's going to get that big fucking payday, which she doesn't deserve, and then she's going to move on. If Ronda Rousey was serious about fighting, was, if she was serious about having a fighting career in the UFC, the UFC would have placed her in there with a soft touch. She would have on the girl in about 15 seconds for the win. And all the lemons and all the knuckleheads and all the dopes who really don't follow MMA would have sat there and been, Ronda's back! Ronda's back! And then that fight with Amanda Nunez would have really made some big money. But Ronda didn't want to put in the time or the effort, didn't have the passion to want to do that anymore. I mean, the game was the game was exposed. They exposed her as a fraud that she was, and then she got her ass whooped, and then she went over to, the, UFC, to uh, the WWE. So at least with Conor, when he decided to fight Donald Cerrone, I was like, all right. This guy's serious about wanting to fight a lot. He still had the passion. He still had the desire. So that was cool. That was cool. And I knew this was going to happen. Now, I thought that McGregor would get him within two rounds. I thought that maybe probably a around, probably but if it's anything more than a round, he'll get him early in the second. I... Did not think any way, shape, or form that Cerrone had a chance to beat McGregor. Had no, I didn't think he would lose in for forty seconds. I didn't think that he would come out there and be so feeble and so weak and such an easy mark. I didn't know that, but I didn't think that he had a shot against um, McGregor. You're speaking about a guy in cowboy who's thirty-eight years old. He seems like he fights every fifteen minutes, and he's lost three straight fights, getting his ass whooped by Justin Gaethje and Tony Ferguson. So the last three fights, he's lost, and he's lost in a spectacular fashion. He still wants to fight. I mean, if he still wants to fight, Cowboy wants to fight. Still a guy who I think, I don't think he's a pay-per-view person anymore, but I think on a fight night or ESPN uh, Plus fight, I think that he'll be good. I think that he can be a good gatekeeper. He's still a name. He's still a name out there. So he's had, what, 50-something fights. I mean, the accomplishments are there. But then again, you're looking at a guy who hasn't won a title who the one time that he did fight for the lightweight title, he got his ass balled by Rafael Dos Anos. So it was, a, it was perfect. Donald Cerrone's a name. He had beaten people of stature. He is a guy who, you know, puts on exciting fights. Conor McGregor, we don't know what type of shape that he's in. We don't know what type of fighter he's going to be coming back. So this was set up perfectly for the UFC. Conor kicks his ass people who don't know anything about the fight game who are Conor McGregor fans, knuckleheads who don't follow the fight game for real like those guys on ESPN and and the Fox Sports and everything like that. Then all of a sudden, they start singing his praises. They start going gaga. They start going, oh my goodness, Conor is back. Get out the knee pads. Conor is back. Oh my goodness. Let's bow down. Please, Conor, unbuckle your belt so we can give you the proper salute that we want to give you. Conor is back. And hey, look, you know what? ESPN and Fox Sports and those things, I can't blame those guys. Because they know the public, they don't know anything about MMA. They don't know anything about the, 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 the folks the, the, the hardcore fans we know. Most other sports fans, they don't know. They don't know about Israel Asanya. They don't know about Demetrius Johnson fighting over Japan. They don't know about uh they don't know about Daniel Cormier for the most part. They don't know about these guys. They don't know about Henry Sahuda. They don't know about these guys. They don't. They know Conor McGregor, just like just like casual boxing fans, they'll probably say, uh, "Let me see." They know Manny Pacquiao and Floyd Mayweather. That's it. That's it. They don't, or or maybe Canelo Alvarez, maybe, maybe. But I bet you, if you ask the average sports fan, the guy or the gal who's married, kids, job, you know, the casual sports fan, not deeply into it, but you know, he'll watch sports. You ask him to name a boxer, they'll probably say first Floyd Floyd Mayweather Jr. Then they'll name Manny Pacquiao, and then maybe, possibly, maybe they'll name Canelo Alvarez if they're passing by boxing fans. Same thing with MMA. Name an MMA superstar. They'll name Conor McGregor. They're not going to name anybody else. (laughs) Or they'll name Conor McGregor and Ronda Rousey. Maybe, maybe, because of the news that he's been in in the past. Maybe John Jones. Maybe. But other than that, they're not going to name anybody else. They're not going to name Kamara Usman. They're not going to name Colby Covington. They're not going to name TJ Dillashaw, especially now since he's been out a, for a few years. They're not going to name Cody Goldbrand, They're not going to name any of those guys. They're not going to even name Uriah Faber. They're not going to name any of those guys. So ESPN, I understand it. I get it. You know, It's like, hey, let's feed the beast. Let's feed the lemmings who don't know anything about this. My question is this. Hey, you know what? Connor did what he needed to do. It was an easy touch. It was a light touch. And guess what? He took care of business. It was almost like when Roy Jones Jr. would fight these guys, these nobodies. And then when he was a light heavyweight, and he would knock these guys out, or he would toy with them, or he had this nonsense where he would go play basketball in the afternoon and then go over to Pensacola and fight a professional fight in the evening. Wasn't that unbelievable? Wasn't that great? Yeah, he wasn't fighting anybody. Yeah, but you know what? He looked good doing it. He looked really good doing it. So... Yeah, Conor looked really good. Conor looked mission accomplished. He got him out. He got him out quickly, and he looked great. My question is, what does that mean? He's back. Is he really back? Can you really say that he's back after this fight? Now, you could say that he's not washed up. I mean, we're not going to sit there and say, ooh, gee, I don't know about this. (laughs) Conor, maybe a little rusty. Maybe this, that, and the other. No, 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 no. He looked good. He looked really good. And I guess leading up to his fight, with Cowboy. In the interviews that he was doing, he did an interview with Ariel Hawani and he did some interviews with others, and he was talking about, you know, hey, I've uh, made some mistakes. I'm grown. I've got a family now, and this, that, and the other, and now I'm dedicated to trading, and you know what? I I liked the new Conor McGregor. I really do. The, The bombacity is gone. The stupidity as far as what he was talking about was gone. No more Stepping near the line with racial overtones or anything like that—no, none no, of no, that nonsense. He seemed to uh, mellow. He seemed to uh, mature. And I guess maybe the year that he had, maybe that woke him up. Maybe he kind of found out. It, maybe just the man, thirty-seven years old, and he's made a hundred million dollars. I mean, okay, I've kind of accomplished everything that I want to accomplish. I'm a champion. I'm rich. Do I really need to keep doing this bullshit? Do I really need to keep acting like a fool? Do I really need to? Keep up in the ante because when you're when you're Conor McGregor and that's the act that you have during that time. Each time you have to top yourself. So if you go crazy at one conf- press conference, the next time people see you, they need you to for they need for you to be even crazier. So you keep going for more and for more and for more. And when does it stop? When did you hit the ceiling? When did you say, fellas, that's it"? You know, that's my that's my limit here. I mean, you know. I can't give you any more crazy. I've reached the crazy line. I can't. That's it. I'm done. So with Conor, it's almost like, look, you know, enough of that. I'm all. I'm all now only about fighting. All right. I've gotten to the point now where, look, I'm going to sell pay per views. I'm going to get people in the seats. I'm going to make a boatload of money when I fight. I don't have to go nuts. I don't have to do the whole nonsense that I did with Jose Aldo. I don't have to take a look at Muhammad Ali or Cassius Clay at the time when he did the Sonny listing trying to get in his brain and all that kind of stuff, which he did before their first fight in Miami. I don't need to do that stuff. I did that with Josie Aldo at work. I don't need to do that nonsense anymore. I am hoping, and maybe Khabib will not bring it out of him. I don't know. I think everybody else that he fights, I think the Conor McGregor in terms of his demeanor, in terms of what he's saying, in terms of everything like that, I think it's going to be around that stratosphere. I don't think he's going to see him going nuts, but I think possibly if they fight Khabib again, I'm not going to say Connor's going to go down the rabbit hole of making fun of his religion or doing anything like that, but there's something. It'll be interesting if Connor can keep his cool against the Margaret whenever they fight, if they ever fight again. If Connor can keep his cool and you do a little t- trash talking, of course, and talk about I want to whip your ass and do all those type of things. If, if he keeps it on that level, I think. I truly believe that Conor McGregor is back. And I truly believe that Conor will be training and getting ready for a fight against Khabib that could be different, much different than it was the first time in terms of Conor winning that fight. But if Conor comes in and he goes back to the same old McGregor that we knew and some loved, some hated, and he goes back to the insults and he goes back to trying to get under his skin and he goes back to trying to quote unquote sell tickets, he's gonna get his ass whooped because if that's the case, then Connor probably knows that he can't beat Normaga Medoff. And maybe all of this talk about, well, you know, I wanna stay at Walter and all of these things, maybe that's another sign to say, I don't wanna fight Normarga Medoff again. It ain't worth it. It's not my style. This, that and the other? Even though, if people are talking about, well, that's going to be the biggest fight in mixed martial arts. Or it's, hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Whoa. Hey, last time I checked, there's a fight on April 18th at the Barclays Center where Nemanja Medoff is going to be fighting Tony Ferguson. Don't sleep on Tony Ferguson at all. People are forgetting about that. You know what? Remember, remember all that nonsense people were talking about, where they were trying to have these dream matchups between Anderson Silva and John Jones, and Anderson Silva and George St. Pierre, and that was supposed to be in the mix. And blah blah blah. And Chris Weidman said, "Whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute. What's all this bullshit y'all talking about? These super fights? I mean, that ain't gonna happen because Anderson Silva ain't beating me. Let me let me show you what I'm talking about." Well, Tony Ferguson and all this stuff about, well, you know, man, I mean, could Connor go for the, the lightweight championship and that fight with Nurmagic Medoff could be the biggest seller ever and blah, blah, blah. And Dana White's up there comparing it to George Foreman and Muhammad Ali and Ali and Joe Frazier and all this kind of nonsense. El Cuyo sitting there talking about, well, wait a minute, man, I have a real, real shot. I mean, God, please let this fight go on. If this guy can stay healthy and Nurmagomedov can stay healthy and then they fight, Tony Ferguson has a damn good chance of winning that fight against Medoff. He won't be the favorite. And leading up to the buildup, he won't be, you know, he'll he'll be dismissed. Everything will be centered around Nurmagomedov. But no, 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 no. Tony Ferguson has won 12 fights in a row. Now, if Khabib gets a hold of him, puts him down on his ass, then the the fight game's over. But you talk about the unorthodox style that Ferguson has the boulder and everything. Hey, look, man, I, you know, I'm, I'm not counting that up as a victory for Nomaga Medoff. That, in my opinion, is going to be one of the fights of the year. So I don't know, man. I don't know what McGregor is going to be about. I don't know what McGregor in terms of, is he back yet? I don't know. This was the same thing. It's an old point from boxing. You know, you put a guy in there, you know, to rehab him. It was the same thing where Mike Tyson, when he fought Peter McNeely. Now I'm not saying the Cowboys Cerrone is Peter McNeely. But what I am saying is is that, you know what? They picked a guy from McGregor who he could beat, and he could beat easily. Boom, let's bring in uh, um, Donald Cerrone. It was the same thing with Mike Tyson. The guy was in prison for three years. We need to put him in there against an easy touch. I got an idea. Let's put in Peter McNeely. Donald Cerrone and Peter McNeely are on different levels as far as fighting is concerned, but their chances of beating their opponent were around the same, zero. So when Tyson did what he needed to do, very impressively, and he knocked out Peter McNeely, and what was everybody doing, yelling, Tyson's back, Tyson's back, Tyson's back, and then he went a couple of other fights, and oh, I forget, oh, I forgot the guy he fought, the Night Train, or, I don't know, he fought, I remember he fought, uh, did he fight Frank Bruno, he fought Frank Bruno, and then he fought some other guy, and he won the belt and it was like, oh, Tyson's back. Tyson's back. The old Tyson's back. And then he fought van to Holyfield. And they were like, Tyson's not back. Tyson's not back. No, not not really. Not really. He fought he van to Holyfield. And everyone was like, Holy shit. Holy shit. Tyson Tyson underestimated him. Tyson underestimated him. You know, Holyfield had the night of his life. And then they fought for the second time. And it was like, oh yeah, Tyson's not back. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> Tyson bit his ear. As he was getting his ass kicked. Yeah, Tyson isn't back. He was never really back. Okay, sure. I'm not saying that's going to be the pathway for Conor McGregor, but it's just an old boxing ploy. You know, you put somebody in there with a soft touch, and you get the folks juiced up and revved up again. So, that's the same thing with um, Conor McGregor, Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host. Wendell Wallace, but you can say Wendell Wallace, thanks. Hey, um, so Connor wants to come back and fight in March at UFC 248. That's unlikely to happen. If you take a look at that, that's going to be March 7th. That's going to be in Las Vegas at UFC 248. That's Israel Adesanya versus Yoel Romero. And then you have my girl Joanna Janjacek fighting for the strawweight championship against the uh, Asian woman, Chinese woman, whose name I can't pronounce. Sorry. Then on UFC 249, April 18th at the Barclays Center, of course you have Khabib versus Tony Ferguson. I don't think they're gonna have. I think, I think for that situation, I think maybe they'll put, if they could put Conor McGregor on Mars, that wouldn't be far enough away from Khabib in the you know, Tony Ferguson fight. But I don't think, I don't think that's gonna be, I don't think that's gonna be happening in terms of McGregor McGregor fighting on that card. Then you have. UFC 250, that's going to be in Sao Paulo, Brazil, where you have Cejudo versus Jose Aldo for the Bantamweight title. They're trying to put that together. I don't think that you're going to put Conor McGregor in Brazil to fight. So, man, you're taking a look at when Conor McGregor comes back. What, June? June? The earliest? Possibly? Maybe you do it for uh, the, the Fan Fest in July? I mean, there's some other moving parts here. I mean, what about Cormier and Stipe Miocic? When are they going to fight? Are they going to be fighting in the summer? I mean, if you're going to try to have like a super fight or a super build, you're taking a look around. I mean, are you going to probably have something where for July, are you going to try to put maybe Connor versus Jorge Masvidal or Connor versus Justin Gaethje or... You're gonna have Conor fighting, and then you're gonna have John Jones fighting, and then maybe you're gonna have Cormier his farewell fight, his farewell uh, fight against Miosic. I mean, that would be a great card for uh, for for July. But then again, what are you gonna do for June? Are you gonna maybe put um, Matt Vidal versus Usman on that card? Who knows? I don't know, but it'll be it'll be interesting. And I'm taking a look. You know what? I'm 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 thinking about this, and I thought about this, and I said, you know what? Fuck it, let's do it. When we're speaking about Connor's next opponent, because if McGregor's going to be around for a while, and I really do think Connor's got another two, three good years left in him, for him being a solid, you know, elite fighter—is he pound for pound back in the rankings? I don't know. I'm not going to say no after this performance, but it's promising. So if we're going to have Connor around, when he's 31 years old, so if we're going to have Connor around for another. Three years. And let's, I'm not even going to be talking about boxing, Mayweather and Pacquiao or Terrence Crawford. Fuck that bullshit. But I'm just speaking about the octagon now. If you're taking a look at some of the fights that he could put together or some of the opponents that he has, I mean, just think about it. If he wants to stay at welterweight, he feels great at welterweight, he wants to stay at welterweight, he could fight Masvidal, Tyron Woodley, Colby Covington. Could you imagine that fight between him and Colby Covington? Yikes. Uh, Kamaru Usman, I don't think that would be a good idea, Diaz, Justin Gaethje, uh, Wonderboy Thompson, all of those fights that they can have at welterweight, or he could move down and fight someone like a Max Holloway at lightweight, Tony Ferguson, Khabib. So he's got all of these options, all of these really, really good main event pay-per-view, million-plus buy fights right in front of him. The only person looking at this the only <clears throat> the only person that I see him not being able to beat at all is Kamara Usman. <clears throat> I don't, I, I don't, I, Kamara Usman is a beast. He's an absolute beast. And you know what? If he can if he can recover from that ass whooping he got, and his jaw is better, that fight versus Covington McGregor that would be really interesting too. I'm not really a big Colby Covington fan. I think he's a fucking clown. And he's a jerk and he's a fucking um Diaz McGregor wannabe and he doesn't do a good job of doing that. But the man can fight. I mean, the, the man is an excellent mixed martial artist. So that would be a really good test if McGregor is gonna stay at welterweight. Again, it depends on what the mindset is of Covington. Tyron Woodley, I don't think, would be a good matchup for him for him either. Tyron Woodley's too big and too strong. You put him down on the ground and, and beat him up from there. So I wouldn't <clears throat> I wouldn't mess McGregor up with him, but Strikers like Matt Vidal, someone maybe as unorthodox as as Thompson, a stand-up guy like daisy. yeah, I could see Connor having a really good shot against those guys. But you know, if I'm Dana White or if I'm the matchmaker and I'm either even McGregor, you know who I'm fighting next? Fighting Nate Diaz. Nate Diaz number three. Let's do it. Let's get it done. Let's get it done. Not Matt Vidal, not yet. Now, Matt Vidal was talking about he wants to fake Kamara Usman, whoop his ass, and then when he fights Connor, it'll be for the belt, which means he'll have more money. Or the, the theory from coming from Jorge is that, you know what? I take the belt away. I beat Kamara Usman. I'm the welterweight champion of the world. That means now my fight with McGregor is going to be even more. I mean, even more dollars. It means I'm going to even more chicken because I want to have the belt. Well, Jorge, you ain't ain't beating Kamara Usman. Sorry, that that ain't happening. So, it'll be interesting, but I think that he needs to go for that fight. I think he needs to go for the chance to beat Kamara Usman. And when he loses, that fight will still be there for Conor McGregor. And Conor makes money for people. So, whether he's coming off a win or a loss, in this case, if Matt Vidal fights Kamara Usman, it will be coming off a loss. It'll still be a big fight between two guys who are going to stand up there and punch, try to punch each other and do some things. So, I think the third Diaz fight makes sense. Um, the last time Diaz fought was against Jorge Masvidal, UFC 244 in November. I think if they fight again, I think that McGregor wins. I think he ends the trilogy with that. And you fight a name that you could beat, like like Diaz. A guy's not going to try to take you to the take you to the ground. A guy's going to stand there and, and fight you, so you don't have to worry about that. So I think. You get Cowboy. You look great. You go ahead and end the uh, trilogy with, uh, or in the, the uh, thing with um with Diaz. You end the drama and you end all that nonsense with Diaz, and then you move on and you do some other things. So, I think that's uh, the plan for Conor McGregor. And, and they look, man, again, Khabib had to agree to fight you. Everyone's talking about we'll fight Khabib. We'll fight Khabib. Hey, man, Khabib is one of them cats where it's kind of like, no, nah, man, fuck that. Uh-uh, I gave him a one-shot. He's not going to fight just one or two times, and all of a sudden he's going to fight me next. Fuck that bullshit. I'm the champ. I'm the champ, and I'm from Dagestan. You're going to fuck with me? I don't think so. So there's no guarantee, even if Khabib can get by Tony Ferguson, if, God willing, they fight, that uh, this next opponent will be Conor McGregor. But we will see. We will see. All right, I'm done. I am out of here. I want to thank everybody for listening to the program. Oh, it's good to be back. So, so good to be back. I want to thank you for listening and uh, be good to yourselves. Be good to everybody. And remember, man, when you are listening after you're done listening, I want you to do me a favor, all right? After you're done listening to this podcast, here's what I want you to do. Here's my recommendation. I want you to listen to two songs that have been on my mind now for two weeks. I listen to these bad boys I listen to these two songs, I swear, I'm not joking. I listen to these songs like 15 times a day. I'll go like, I'll go like four or five times straight listening to the song, listening to it, rewind, play it again. Listen to it, rewind, play it again. Two songs, both by The Four Tops, sung by Levi Stubbs, who is the lead singer for The Tops, who was the lead singer for The Tops. The first one is MacArthur Park, and another one is a love song. You believe in me because I believe in you. Listen to those two songs. The one song, MacArthur Park, is just crazy, man. The lyrics are just nuts. But you listen to Levi Stubbs' voice. Oh, man, the guy is unbelievable. Of course, the guy's a living legend. The guy, he's not living living anymore. He's been dead since 2008. God rest his soul. But Levi Stubbs, as a singer, was just unbelievable. And when you listen to these two songs, it, it just blows your mind how... Unbelievable! This guy was as a singer. You get, we get, we get lost because he was with the Four Tops and everything and the Motown sound. And you know, we hear about Sugar Pie Honey Bunch and and Bernadette and you know, Still Waters One Deep and all these other great songs that he did. You know, back in the '60s, back in the days at Motown. But when Motown left to go to L.A., the Tops decided that they were going to stay in Detroit. They went to a couple of other couple of other labels. And in the '70s, and in the '80s, they recorded some really good material. And MacArthur Park and "You Believe in Me," I believe you believe in me, I believe in you. Those are just two songs that I mean. If, here's something: if you're going to be getting married, or forget getting married, romantic time with your with your wife, or with your girlfriend, or with your boyfriend, or with the mistress, or whoever, if you want to like take it to the next level. If you want to, like, you know, really get there, I mean, really get some emotions out of you, you know, of, of, of love and all those those type of things, play Levi Stubbs, If You Believe In Me, I Believe In You. Not the Whitney Houston version. I'm talking about the Levi Stubbs version, the four-tops version. It is so unbelievable, man. I, 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 I get emotional each time I hear it. I've been listening to this damn song for the last two weeks, like eight, nine, ten times a day. Sometimes three or four or five times straight. And each one I get emotional. I start thinking about my dad. I start thinking about some other things. I get a little emotional. With, with Park, and the Garthwood Park. the song Levi Stubbs, unbelievable. Unbelievable. So that is, my, that is my request for you to go ahead and do that. So I will leave you with that. And I will leave you with being good to yourself, being good to each other. Try to see what we can do, see what you can do, see what we can all do. To make this world a better place which means do not care for much so much for those who have a lot of money they can take care of themselves care for those who don't have the resources care for those who don't have the financial who have the financial funds care for those people because they need it more than say antonio brown or any other folks who are making millions upon millions of dollars don't mean to be callous i just mean to be truthful
1: music